This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. I hope you all are having a fantastic day. My name is Mike Figueredo. Today is October 4th, and this is episode 212 of the program. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I, of course, have to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up to support us for the very first time this week or increase the monthly pledge that they were already giving to us. And that includes Alderman Gomez, Caregiver Connection, CJ from the Six, Dino Costi, Hannah Swerdfeger, Lucas Dykes, Lucas Silby, Mike Curland, Shama Fardis, William, and William Johnson. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and get early access to our content, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, going to uh, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or you can click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos, and we will always grant you access to um, our content early before they go up on YouTube if I get to edit them uh, in time. So we've got a pretty big episode. This week, an MSNBC panelist claimed that Bernie Sanders supporters that support him over Warren are probably sexist. Bernie Sanders embraces class warfare and introduces a plan to curb CEO pay. Elizabeth Warren is once again showing us why she can't be trusted when it comes to Medicare for All. Tulsi Gabbard officially backtracks on Medicare for All, leaving Bernie Sanders as the only supporter of single-payer Medicare for All in the 2020 race. Donald Trump is increasingly becoming more and more unhinged as support for impeachment increases. We'll talk about the outcome of the net neutrality lawsuit, and I'll provide you with an update to the Botham John case. We'll talk about the CEOs that attacked Bernie Sanders for proposing a wealth tax, along with Bernie Sanders' robust plan to transform the lives of LGBTQ plus Americans. And finally, we'll close out the show by talking to 2020 congressional candidate from Wisconsin, Justin Bonner, about his campaign. And that's what we've got on the agenda for today. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy the episode. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Unlike every other 2020 Democratic Party presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders acknowledges a reality that's probably really uncomfortable for other lawmakers to acknowledge. He acknowledges that class warfare is a real thing, and it's not being waged by the poor, it's being waged on the poor. Now, a reason why other lawmakers and presidential candidates probably don't want to acknowledge that there is a real class warfare going on is because a lot of them are from that ruling class. They are elites themselves, so they don't want to admit that it's the haves versus the have-nots because they're the haves and that makes them look bad and they want to cultivate legitimacy at every point they can so they can't acknowledge this but bernie sanders does and in a tweet from august this is what he said about class warfare if there is going to be class warfare in this country it's about time the working class won that war now that is a very powerful statement and it tells me that bernie sanders unlike every other politician he knows the reality of the country, of the economy. He knows that we are being exploited for our labor. As we work harder and longer 
elites are getting richer and we're getting poorer. So what's happening? What does class warfare actually look like? Well, one component of class warfare can be measured by how much CEOs are paid relative to workers. And as Daniel Moran's of HuffPost reports, CEO pay has exploded relative to the compensation received by ordinary workers in the past few decades. In 2018, the average CEO to median worker pay of a corporation in the S&P 500 index was 287 to 1, according to an AFL-CIO analysis of data collected by the federal government. Prior to the 1970s, the gap between executive pay and that of ordinary workers at their companies was dramatically narrower. CEO compensation, including stock options at the biggest 350 firms, grew 940% since 1978, even as typical worker pay climbed just 12% over the same period, according to an analysis by the Economic Policy Institute. The EPI analysis, which looks at average rather than median worker compensation, found that the CEO to average worker pay ratio went from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 58 to 1 in 1989 to 278 to 1 in 2018. The Institute for Policy Studies, a left-leaning Washington think tank, released a report documenting high CEO pay on Monday as well. The report found that 50 publicly traded companies with the highest CEO to median worker pay gaps, the median worker would have to work 1,000 years to earn the CEO's pay. So make no mistake about it, this is exploitation. They are getting rich off of your labor. And you are not seeing the fruits of your labor. Now, if you subscribe to trickle-down economics, then in theory, as the rich get richer, that wealth should trickle down. You should see, you know, an increase because a rising tide lifts all boats. Except that's not what's happening in, in practice. The rich are just getting massively rich and workers aren't doing much better. This is class warfare. It's one component of class warfare anyways, and thankfully Bernie Sanders understands that. So a lot of politicians, they don't like to acknowledge the reality of class warfare because this just seems like something that is incredibly divisive. But to me, whenever I see someone say that class warfare is divisive, I just think that's a cop-out because it's happening. It's real. We're not the ones who chose to wage this war. The poor didn't choose to engage in class warfare. The elites did. So what we have to do recognizing our class collectively is respond accordingly we have to fight back so what's bernie sanders plan to help the poor have a better shot of winning this class war well in addition to his wealth tax that he proposed it's not elizabeth warren's idea it was initially his idea Here's what he also wants to do. He wants to cap CEO pay. Senator Bernie Sanders released an income inequality tax plan on Monday that would increase taxes on big companies where CEO pay is more than 50 times higher than that of the median worker. Sanders, a fierce critic of income inequality who is seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, identifies the explosion in compensation for top corporate executives as a key factor depressing ordinary workers' wages. At a time of massive income and wealth inequality, the American people are demanding that large profitable corporations pay their fair share of taxes, Sanders said in a statement accompanying the plan. 
It is time to send a message to corporate America. If you do not end your greed and corruption, we will end it for you. Sanders' proposal, which applies to publicly and privately held companies with annual revenue of $100 million or more, would increase companies' corporate tax rate by 0.5 percentage points if their CEO received compensation worth between 50 and 100 times what the company's median employee earned. The higher a company's CEO to median worker pay ratio would go, the higher the surtax it would endure under Sanders' plan. The legislation would levy a one-point tax hike on companies with CEO to median worker ratios between 100 to 1 and 200 to 1, a two-point tax hike for those with ratios between 200 to 1 and 300 to 1, a three-point tax hike for those with ratios between 300 to 1 and 400 to 1, a four-point tax hike for those with ratios between 400 to 1 and 500 to 1, and a 5-point tax hike for those with ratios more than 500 to 1. So I love this proposal because what he's saying is, you know what, if you are going to uh, keep getting more greedy and increasing the pay of your CEOs, it's going to cost you. It will cost you more money. Have fun explaining that to investors because their goal is to increase shareholder value. That's what they're obligated to do. So if this starts cutting into their bottom line, then the CEOs will actually be um, held accountable more. So this is such a brilliant plan. Bernie Sanders, he really does have a plan for everything. And I love, you know, the I have a plan for everything tagline that Elizabeth Warren invented. But it really is more apt for Bernie Sanders because he is the one who every week is introducing more and more policy proposals, more bold, more sweeping. And if he were elected, even if he got 10% of his agenda implemented, can you imagine how that would remake the economy? It would be structural reform that would be life-changing to so many Americans. So this is what you do if you want to communicate to us that you're with the working class, you're with the people. You acknowledge the reality of class warfare and you respond accordingly. You take a side. Because sitting on the fence when people are going bankrupt due to medical debt, when they're losing their homes, that's not bold that's not courageous you're showing us that you're too afraid to admit what's happening how capitalism is crushing normal americans but by acknowledging the reality of class warfare and responding with policies that shows me bernie is the real deal and it's why i absolutely hope he wins this primary because if he doesn't then i just can't imagine a scenario where any other politician gets us on the trajectory of true social democracy, maybe until Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is old enough to run for president. But I mean, who knows? You know, Bernie Sanders may be one of a kind. After, you know, he gets out of politics, maybe talk of class warfare and single-payer Medicare for all goes away. Movements need a leader to be successful. I mean, look at Occupy. I mean, media bias was part of the reason why Occupy failed. But I mean, leadership... It really matters. It's important. But look, as we see articles about Bernie Sanders' campaign being in trouble, acknowledge something. Don't get demoralized. Get energized. Realize that nobody has even cast a vote yet. It's not like it's over for us. What are we doing? We're going to sit back and let Elizabeth Warren rise and Joe Biden and her just be the top two? Absolutely not. If Bernie Sanders is your candidate, if his vision represents what you want, then fight for it. Don't sit at home. Don't feel demoralized and discouraged. Fight for it.
Convince your friends and family. Knock on doors. Phone bake for Bernie. It's not over until it's over. And right now it's not over. We can get Bernie Sanders elected. We just have to fight for it. So take action. Throughout the course of the 2020 election cycle, MSNBC has repeatedly brought on guests who have smeared Bernie Sanders or his supporters or both. Guests have said that he's just an old white male and he needs to fall back. He makes my skin crawl. And now here's what an MSNBC panelist said about Bernie Sanders supporters. There's, there's a ceiling. There is nowhere to go, but there is no up to go. And all of those support, I actually heard overheard someone saying that I thought was an interesting point that um, basically at this point, if you are still supporting Sanders as opposed to Warren, it's kind of showing your sexism because she has more detailed plans and her plans have evolved. I thought it was an interesting point, and I think there may be something to it. Yeah, I agree with all that. <laughs> it's, um, it's a good answer. You know, that was disgusting. That was nothing more than a brazen smear. And you know, it's not Elizabeth Warren's responsibility to condemn this. She can't possibly condemn everything. But it would be much appreciated if she actually did the right thing and condemned this sort of rhetoric, condemned this sort of behavior, a smear at her behest. She should say, you know what, I don't want your support. I condemn what she said there because I know that Bernie Sanders supporters have their reasons for supporting him over me. And this type of rhetoric is unacceptable. This is gutter politics. We're better than this. Will Elizabeth Warren condemn this? Probably not, but I would absolutely love it if she did because this is downright morally reprehensible. And before I get to the substance, not that there was much, but think about this. Fox News has probably done less damage to Bernie than MSNBC because when Fox News smears Bernie Sanders as a communist or a socialist, it holds less weight because they are the right-wing Republican Party propaganda arm. However, when MSNBC does it, which has a lot of left-leaning Democratic Party voting viewers, well, that actually holds more weight. So when they see someone say, you know what, if you're supporting Bernie over Warren, it's probably because you're sexist then maybe they're thinking, you know what, I don't want to perpetuate sexism, so maybe I should back Warren over Bernie Sanders. You know, it's vapid, it's superficial, and it's a smear, and it's downright disgusting. You can just as easily say, anyone who's choosing to support Warren over Bernie Sanders is anti-Semitic. You can easily make that case, because she did not provide us with any evidence, not even an anecdote, no polls, no nothing. So she just said it, because this is based off of the feelings of one person, what one person said. And there was zero pushback from the host. In fact, the host, towards the end of the clip, as you saw, agreed with her. So this is absolutely, it's so frustrating because this is a news organization. We expect them to present us with data and facts, but there's nothing. They didn't base this off of a video where they interviewed Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren supporters and maybe one of them seemed a little bit sexist, they just said it. That's bad. That's harmful. And not to mention, it's factually incorrect because Elizabeth Warren's plans are not more detailed than Bernie Sanders. First and foremost, her foreign policy is far less detailed than Bernie Sanders. And what we know about her foreign policy is that she's more hawkish than Bernie Sanders. Her wealth tax, student loan debt cancellation plans, they don't go as far as Bernie Sanders. She's wishy-washy when it comes to Medicare for All, and she doesn't have a plan to cancel medical debt. So there are actually policy reasons why we 
should support Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren because objectively speaking, he is better than Elizabeth Warren if you truly want social democracy. But here's why this individual is smearing Bernie Sanders. Take a guess. She is really, really wealthy. So she is an heiress. Her dad's net worth is estimated to be between 500 million and 1.1 billion. He also owns a $30 million yacht. And his firm was one of Hillary Clinton's top donors in 2016. So I don't know why she is supporting Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. But I mean, if I had to take a guess, maybe it's because she's an elitist. Maybe it's because she knows that Bernie Sanders' wealth tax goes further. It would take more money away than Elizabeth Warren's. I don't know. We don't even have to go through her motivations to denounce this. This type of gutter politics should be unacceptable. Anyone who's watching MSNBC should automatically realize that this person is a bad faith actor. She doesn't actually care about policy. She has a political agenda. But, you know, here's the thing. People who watch MSNBC they may not necessarily just automatically know that that was a bad faith smear of Bernie Sanders supporters, which is why we all have to come out and condemn this type of behavior and rhetoric because it's damaging. It's absolutely damaging. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. This isn't surprising anymore, and I haven't been able to cover all of the attempts to besmirch Bernie Sanders' character on MSNBC because if I did, I would never have any time to do anything because they're constantly doing it. But I absolutely feel like it's really important to condemn some of the worst. And this is one of the worst because you're not just smearing a candidate. You are smearing his base of support, which the Democratic Party, let me remind you, is going to need to win in 2020. And it seems like they haven't learned their lesson again. But what adds another layer of absurdity to this is that Bernie Sanders' support base, it's not just straight white males. His support base is mostly women and it is multiracial. So, I mean, for you to say this when most of his supporters are women, it just, it makes it more absurd, but it, it doesn't even matter. People, they say things on MSNBC that aren't fact-checked, right? You'd expect them just being more left-leaning than Fox News to be a little bit more rigorous in the things that they say. You'd expect the hosts to care about facts, you know, to push back a little bit. But of course, that's not what we're dealing with. We have bad faith actors just going out of their way to smear because they don't like Bernie Sanders. Well, whatever the reason, I don't know why, but I mean, since they're doing it, I can just attribute my own reason to why they disapprove of Bernie Sanders. I think it's because they're anti-Semitic. Uh, if you don't think that's the case, well, I'm not presenting any data for my arguments. It's just a feeling. So, um, whatever, you're anti-Semitic if you don't support Bernie Sanders. My argument is just as persuasive as her argument because I presented an equal amount of facts as she did. And precisely that is zero. But, you know, who cares about facts when we are just saying things that uh, aren't even based on anecdotes? I mean, this is really what political discourse has devolved into in 2020. In the age of Donald Trump, when they're constantly complaining about him calling everything fake news, shouldn't you be going out of your way to reassure viewers that they should be confident in you? Keep sucking, because my channel will only continue to grow. 
during the debates while she's on national television everything that elizabeth warren says about medicare for all it's perfect it's absolutely excellent her rhetoric is on point she assures us that she wants to get rid of private she supports single payer and everything she says is music to my ears but whenever she exits the debate stage when she's on the campaign trail when less people are watching she doesn't sound as uh, confident in her support for medicare for all right now what we've got in Medicare for All is a framework, and it doesn't have the details, and you're right to be asking. But the most important part of your asking is to, is to raise awareness so we get this right as we go through it. What she said there was a lie. It was a bold-faced lie. She said, right now, what we've got in Medicare for All is a framework, and it doesn't have the details. That's not true. That is a lie. Medicare for All is a highly detailed piece of legislation that has been introduced in the House and the Senate. And it has existed now for years. Maybe she meant, look, I don't have my own version of Medicare for all. I just have a framework. But if you are the person who's got a plan for everything, that's still not a very good defense. So at a minimum, she was talking about her own health care plan. But, you know, the problem is when you say Medicare for all is just a framework, you're saying it's not this fully fleshed out idea. It's just a goal. No, it is a policy, Liz. How do you not get this? And by saying that, you're spreading misinformation. So that's what she says about Medicare for all, just in general. I don't know if she's talking about Bernie's bill or her bill, but I mean, just getting her to agree that she supports Medicare for all in and of itself is difficult because once the cameras cut after a debate, for example, this is what she was saying when asked when she would release her own health care plan. When are we going to see your plan on health care? Are you going to have your own plan? I, I, we, I support Medicare for all. Um, I think this is a good plan. And look, I support a lot of plans. Other things that people have come up with when they're good plans, let's do it. This isn't some kind of contest. I got to think of mine first. It's what's best for the American people. Actually, it's quite literally a contest. So what are you saying? And understand why that's problematic. She supports Medicare for all, but look, you know, um, everyone has good plans. So, um, you know, if uh, there are good plans, then let's do it. Meaning, if somebody else, like Michael Bennett, proposes something that's not Medicare for all, let's do that instead. That's what I hear when she says something like that. And just stop for a moment and consider this question. Does that sound like someone who's going to fight for Medicare for all? I mean, the fact that we're even entertaining whether or not anyone else truly supports single-payer Medicare for all at this point is a joke. There's one candidate who has not wavered on Medicare for all. It's Bernie Sanders. Watching her say that right there, that tells me everything I need to know. She is not truly going to support Medicare for all. And when it comes to Medicare for all, another reason why I don't think she actually would fight for it is because getting her to just admit to basic details about single payer is like pulling teeth. One of the most basic aspects of a single payer type system is you raise taxes to pay for a single-payer national healthcare system. She can barely admit to that. So, so what I want to get is, I want to get insurance that covers everybody. I don't tax anybody. I'm not, I'm not trying to make this harder on your family. I just want it to cover all the families. And to the extent that the unions have negotiated, this has been part of their entire pay package, then the unions need to be made whole. Listen, 
under a single payer system, we raise taxes and that's how we fund healthcare. You can explain it. You can say, look, overall, you will net save money because we eliminate copays, deductibles, monthly premiums. So overall, everyone will net save money. You can explain it that way. But to not admit a basic fact that it doesn't raise taxes tells me that maybe single payer isn't actually what you want because you refuse to describe it. Now, in an interview with Colbert, I can't play the clip because it's CBS and they would copyright strike this video. She couldn't admit that we'd raise taxes to fund single payer. And it is incredibly frustrating. And she said, look, I want insurance that covers everybody. I don't want to tax anybody. I'm not trying to make this harder on your family. Just saying that is problematic because you are suggesting that a tax for Medicare for all would harm people. No, it would save people money. If you make less than $29,000 per year, you do not see a tax increase. If you make above that, you will see a tax increase for Medicare for All, but we eliminate copays, deductibles, monthly insurance premiums, and you have more money. So if you spend 20 grand a year on health insurance under Medicare for All, you're going to be spending 15 or 10. That's the difference. Now, she did clarify later, and I think she gave a better answer because she was so uh, vague there. Somebody had to follow up, but here's what she said. No, it was talking about taxing her Cadillac health care plan that she had asked me about. Look, uh, I think what you're asking about is Medicare for all, and um, I'm pretty clear on this. Uh, rich people and big corporations are going to see their costs go up, but middle class families are going to see their costs go down, and that's how it should be. I spent a big part of my life studying why families go broke, and too often it's around health care. And it's healthcare even for people who have health insurance. Uh, we need to change that in America, and I think we can. So first of all, you're not clear on this. You have never been clear on the issue of Medicare for All, with the exception of your performance at the debates. But once those cameras are off and not everyone is watching, that's when you start getting more wishy-washy. And her answer there was better, but the fact that every time she talks about healthcare and Medicare for All, we need some sort of clarification. It just goes to show you that she's not the real deal. And here's the thing, after months of championing herself as being the candidate that has a plan for everything, she only just released a plan for healthcare on her website a couple of weeks ago. And nowhere in that proposal does it explicitly say the words single payer. Now, you may think that I'm just being nitpicky, but that actually does matter at a time when other politicians like Kamala Harris, they're calling their plan Medicare for all or Medicare blank. And they're trying to suggest that their plans are comparable to Bernie's when and in fact, they're not. So for her to say single payer, that tells us exactly what she supports. No mention of that. But on top of that, when it comes to mental health care, this is free at the point of service under Bernie Sanders' proposal. But under her plan, she doesn't say anything. There's a specific little exception that she carved out for mental health care where she talks about affordable mental health and, quote, holding insurers accountable, which means in her version of Medicare for All, it's not going to be as comprehensive as Bernie's because she is explicitly choosing to leave out mental health. Now, why she's choosing to do this, I don't know. But even if she supports Medicare for All, she's saying my version isn't as robust as Bernie's version. Now, she raised her hand at the debate, rightfully so, and said, I want to get rid of private insurance. Now, the reason why Medicare for All gets rid of private insurance is because it offers comprehensive benefits, but also bans duplicative care. 
What she's doing here is she is making her own version of Medicare for all skimpier in order to preserve a role for these private insurance companies. Because if you say we're not going to cover mental health, we're going to leave that out. Not only is that less important to you, that's what that tells me, but also you are saying there's going to be this whole market for mental health insurance when mental health care is health care. There should be no exception. So basically, the overall conclusion after showing you clip after clip of her backtracking on Medicare for all or being vague intentionally so, I think, the conclusion is evident. Elizabeth Warren is not to be trusted when it comes to the issue of Medicare for all because we have no idea what will actually be codified into law once she's elected. She's saying now she supports Medicare for all and that's better than Hillary, I guess, but I mean, that was a really low bar. Most people are better than Hillary Clinton. John Delaney is at least to the left of Hillary Clinton when it comes to healthcare. So for Elizabeth Warren to say, I support Medicare for all, but I mean, if somebody else has a better plan, Medicare for America, Medicare Choice, I'll go with that. That's not giving me the confidence that you're going to push for and fight for a policy that is incredibly important to me. And here's the thing. If you're elected as president and you truly want Medicare for all, you need to go in guns blazing because the health insurance industry is going to try to end your career. So to already show your willingness to capitulate, that tells me we're not getting Medicare for all if we get an Elizabeth Warren president. Your rhetoric may be nice at the debates, but after the debates, I still need you to remain committed. And you're not. Now, Anna Kasparian of TYT wrote an op-ed for The Hill that basically expressed everything that I'm thinking when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. She writes... Candidates shouldn't get away with slapping the Medicare for All label on whatever they want to co-opt the popularity of Bernie's plan. Voters aren't stupid, and progressives in particular are paying close attention to each candidate's rhetoric on the campaign trail. Labeling a non-single-payer healthcare plan as Medicare for All is like slanging a pair of Adidas sneakers as if they're the real thing. For those who don't think wavering on Medicare for All is all that important, consider what her backpedaling represents. It represents dishonesty honesty and the willingness to pretend to support policy because it's popular with the intention to compromise and concede later. It's become abundantly clear that there is simply one candidate who will aggressively fight for the legislation, and it's Bernie Sanders, the man who wrote the damn bill. That is exactly right. Healthcare is the number one issue for a lot of voters, so if you truly, deeply want a Medicare for all single payer system with no private insurance you know who to vote for it's not elizabeth warren it's not andrew yang it's not tulsi gabbard it's not marianne williamson the one person who has been consistent is bernie sanders so if you want medicare for all single payer you vote bernie otherwise you're getting someone a different candidate who doesn't support it truly because i mean all we need is like one red flag and that's, that's enough. That tells you all you need to know, that they're willing to cave. Anytime you show even the just smallest semblance that you're willing to capitulate, you're done. I have no interest in you because I want Medicare for all. And if you're talking about something that's not single-payer Medicare for all, then I know that you're not going to fight for it when you're elected. So it's a damn shame because Elizabeth Warren could really be a leader here. She's surging in the polls, but she's doing it by essentially deceiving voters. And I absolutely think that that is morally reprehensible. Shame on Elizabeth Warren. She really has the nerve to call herself the candidate with the plan for everything when she's been so wishy-washy on Medicare for all. 
pick a lane and stay in it. But what we're seeing now with all of this wavering and wishy-washiness, all it tells me is that we're not getting Medicare for all unless we get a Bernie Sanders president. And that's a sad fact because we shouldn't have the weight of one policy be on the back of one candidate, but that's where we're at. It's Bernie or no Medicare for all. It's as simple as that. Liz isn't going to do it. Tulsi isn't going to do it. It's going to be Bernie. He's the one person who's going to fight for it. And maybe he's not going to be successful. Maybe he loses this fight. But what I know for damn sure is he's at least going to fight for it. And that's really, really important. In August, during a post-debate interview, Tulsi Gabbard said something about healthcare reform, namely Medicare for All, that had me deeply concerned, to say the least, because it seemed like she was implying that her version of healthcare reform would include some type of role for private insurance, uh, you know, a private option, if you will. Now, let me be clear. If there is a private option or a public option, that is not the same thing as single payer. So this is what she said in that interview, followed by my remarks about her comment. So let's do our job, try to bring down the cost of health care in this country that's exorbitant, make sure people can get the quality care they need, and if they still choose that that's not what they want, they can go get the private insurance. Uh, they I ask okay, so let me be clear. In no way do I think that was anywhere near as bad as Warren's there are many paths to Medicare for all line, but it still was deeply, deeply disappointing. Because Tulsi Gabbard was one of two candidates who I really felt like they hadn't wavered on Medicare for all. And I don't know that she's wavering here. I think that really we need more clarification. But what she said there absolutely worried me because I want someone who's going to get in there and just crack skulls and make these private insurance companies deathly afraid. But that's not what we got there. Fast forward to today, and we got the clarification that we wanted. And it's not good, quite frankly. If she got her way, her version of healthcare reform would in fact preserve a role for private insurance. How large of a role? I'm not sure. But when you say something to the effect of we need a private option, that tells me that there probably won't be a duplicative ban. That maybe these private health insurance companies can in fact cover essential care needs that Medicare also covers. So you get to choose, if you will. You have the choice to choose between private and public insurance. And her comment, the clarification that we were looking for came in an interview with NPR. When you say healthcare, are you for Medicare for all? If you can just tick through the list more specifically. Uh, yes, I support, I prefer to call it Medicare choice, where we are ensuring quality health care for all people, regardless of, of how little they may have in their pocket or they, their bank account, while ma maintaining their freedom of choice. If they've got a, a, an employer-sponsored plan or a union-sponsored plan that they're happy with, they should have the opportunity to do so. But the bottom line being that in the wealthiest nation in the world, there is no excuse that we still have far too many Americans who are underinsured or uninsured and who are one healthcare emergency away from total financial disaster. Yeah. That's not Medicare for all. That's not single payer. That sounds more like a public option. Now, what she's essentially saying is, look, rather than eliminating private insurance, we want to give people the choice. You can choose to just remain on Medicare or you can buy your own private health insurance. So that's what she wants. But let me ask you this. How is that any different than John Delaney, Kamala Harris, and what Pete Buttigieg is proposing? Because this is the same thing that they say. I mean, the rhetoric is virtually identical. Case in point. I'm Pete Buttigieg. Providing every single American with quality health insurance isn't just my plan. 
It's our cause. Now, I go about it in a very different way than many of my competitors. First, my plan gives everybody access to Medicare. Everybody. But if you're happy with the private insurance you've got, my plan would let you stick with it, if you want. Now, others say it's Medicare for all or nothing. I approve this message to say the choice should be yours. Ask yourself this, how is that different than Tulsi Gabbard's plan? It sounds like a public option. It's definitely not single payer. But if you ask Tulsi Gabbard or ask her husband on Twitter anyways, they'll tell you, no, actually, she hasn't changed her position. She still supports Medicare for all, and she definitely doesn't support a public option. In fact, he assures us that nothing has changed. She supports Medicare for all across the board with a private, not public option if people wanted. This has always been her stance. You can agree or disagree with this, but saying she doesn't support Medicare for all just isn't true. Except that is factually incorrect. Medicare for all is single payer. That's it. That's the policy as AOC put it. So if you have a quote unquote private option, that is not the same as a single payer system. Because once you introduce additional payers into the fold, aka private insurance companies, you are then dealing with multiple payers. Hospitals are not just billing one entity. Now they're having to bill multiple entities, the US government and private health insurance companies, which increases the amount of paperwork and leads to additional administrative costs. Simply put, that's not what single payer is, and that's not Medicare for all. And what frustrates me is that Tulsi Gabbard has adopted the rhetoric of someone like Pete Buttigieg, where she's saying, no, 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 by having this private option, I'm actually increasing choice because rather than just having everyone automatically be enrolled on this government program and there's no opt-in, if they want to, if they're not satisfied with the comprehensive benefits offered by Medicare for All, they can go buy private insurance from Aetna. Except the problem with this is under the guise of increasing choice, in practice, a policy like this will actually facilitate less choices. Now, how is that going to be the case? Well, picture this. Under single payer, if I wanted to see a doctor in Portland, John Smith, I know that I would just have to call and make an appointment with John Smith. Although, if we have a multi-payer system, if there's a private option introduced, well, then it's not going to be so easy. Maybe I call John Smith and I say, Dr. Smith, I want to, you know, set up an appointment with you. When are you available? Well, maybe John Smith says, actually, Michael, we only accept private insurance. Well, then that's reducing my choice as an American. I can't just see the doctor that I want to see. I have to have private insurance to see that doctor. Because if we have a single-payer system, hospitals and doctors, they have no choice. They have to accept everyone because we're all on the same plan. But if you introduce private a private option, if you will, into the mix, well, then maybe some hospitals or doctor's offices will only accept private. Or maybe they accept both, but people uh, who are rich purchase a private plan where it allows them to jump to the front of the line. You see, as an American citizen, where I want my choices maximized is when it comes to choosing my hospitals and choosing my doctors. But if you don't ban duplicative care and you allow these private health insurance companies to essentially handle all care, including essential care, 
and we're not just talking about supplemental, we're talking about essential, which seems like that's what she wants, well, then we are effectively reducing choice because that gives some doctors the option of only accepting private, some the option of accepting public, maybe some with a combination of both. But the problem with this system is that it's a multi-payer system. It undercuts the benefits of a single-payer system where, you know, there's no prospect of a two-tiered healthcare system where there's different health standards for the rich and different health standards for the poor. We're also all in one risk pool under a single-payer system, which reduces overall costs, and it's just better overall. So by saying you support Medicare choice, well, we're only ostensibly having more choices, but in actuality, we'll have less choices. Because once you start introducing multiple payers, that's not single payer. So by saying that she supports choice, if she truly, her goal is to support choice, then Tulsi Gabbard should support a single payer Medicare for all system with no private option, because then it's just easier. I don't have to worry if John Smith, Dr. John Smith is going to say, no, Mike, we don't accept Medicare. We only accept Aetna and private. I don't have to worry about that. I have more choice. So if choice is what you care about, this is antithetical to your goal of maximizing choice when it comes to healthcare. And also on top of that, we already have a private option, or at least we allow supplemental because in current Medicare, there is a duplicative ban. With that being said, there's a bunch of loopholes in our current Medicare system, and they have been lobbying government to not close those loopholes because they don't want our current Medicare system to be comprehensive. Why? Because they want to hawk these supplemental plans and sell these plans to people who already have Medicare because they want to profit. So even under Tulsi's system, what I described really was a best case scenario. At worst, you know, everyone who's on a public plan would be forced into some type of supplemental plan that is, you know, sold by these private health insurance companies. We'd have to buy supplemental because, again, when you start getting into the territory where you are preserving a role for private companies to offer insurance, they're going to start lobbying the government to water down the public plan because maybe they don't just want to be an alternative. Maybe they want to serve people on Medicare as well. And it's just a mess. Why would you want to do this? By preserving a role for private health insurance companies, these are all the things that you're opening the door to. Now, here's the thing. Tulsi Gabbard, there's no way she doesn't know this. She knows this, right? But she's being disingenuous by saying, I am expanding choice because what her plan would look like in practice based on what she said would not increase choice. You want to get the profit motive out. You want to get the private insurance companies out of healthcare because if you don't, then you open the door to a less robust, more skinny version of single payer or a public option or private option or whatever you want to call it. But here's the thing. If your goal is truly the delivery of healthcare, then we don't need private insurance companies. We don't need them for duplicative care. We don't need them covering essential care. And we also don't need them for supplemental care because any role that you preserve for private insurance companies well, in order to preserve any type of role, you have to water down the public plan. And Adam Gaffney lays this out. This is the president of Physicians for a National Health System, and he literally helped Pramila Jayapal write her Medicare for All bill, which does get rid of private insurance companies. Now, here's what he said in an op-ed for the nation. The only way to make room for a significant role for private insurance in the American context is to make the public system paltrier or skimpier to impose onerous copays and deductibles or to let the rich preferentially displace working class people from hospital beds and doctor's offices. But it doesn't seem to make sense to punch holes in your own floor just to create work for a carpenter. That is particularly true if 
your floor is your healthcare and your carpenter is an extractive insurance giant. Exactly. So Tulsi Gabbard can call this whatever she wants to call it, a private option, a public option, but it's not single payer, which is essentially what we've come to expect with Medicare for All. Medicare for All and single payer are synonyms for one another, right? It's just Medicare for All is branding for single payer. So if you support a private option, by definition, you don't support a single payer Medicare for all system. So what you should do at this point is just own it. Just admit, I don't support a plan that is as robust as Bernie Sanders. Because by saying that you still support Medicare for all, you are actively deceiving people. And I'm not suggesting that Tulsi Gabbard is corrupt. She's not taking money from health insurance companies as far as I know. But oftentimes, it's not only about corruption. Maybe she's just too afraid to stand up to the private health insurance industry who can still destroy her career. Maybe they're not corrupting her, but maybe she's worried that they would bankroll a future primary opponent or something like that. I don't know, but she doesn't support Medicare for All. And she should stop saying that she supports Medicare for All when in fact she doesn't. Because when we think of Medicare for All, we think of single payer. But what frustrates me is that all of these candidates, they know that Medicare for All is popular, which is why they call it Medicare for America, Medicare for All Who Wanted. If you're Kamala, Medicare for All. If you're Tulsi Gabbard now, Medicare Choice. You're just trying to hijack the framing to sell your watered-down version, and I don't appreciate that. I would very much like if Tulsi Gabbard was more honest and upfront. And um, if she's not, then... I don't know what to say. I guess I just expected better. And let me just say this. I don't support candidates who don't support Medicare for All. So at this point, if Tulsi Gabbard is not going to support Medicare for All, I have absolutely zero interest in supporting Tulsi Gabbard. That doesn't mean that I'm canceling her or whatever that means, um, or however you want to interpret this. That just means that she's not an ideological ally to me. Maybe she is a political ally. Maybe her and Bernie can align to take down opponents like uh, Kamala Harris. But at this point, I have no interest in supporting a candidate who does not support Medicare for All. That is my litmus test. And if you fail that, one strike you're out, I have no interest in supporting you further than that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that Tulsi Gabbard clarified here, but now she needs to actually do the right thing and just admit that she doesn't support Medicare for All. This is not single payer. What she's describing is basically a public option or according to her, it's a private option. Either way, multi-payer system. That's what that is. It's not single payer. Stop calling it single payer. It's not Medicare for All. You don't support Medicare for All. Stop lying. Stop gaslighting. This comes from a place of love. And let me just say this. This is what happens when you don't criticize candidates. See, I have always argued that constructive criticism is important. And if we gatekeep, if we tell people, no, 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 don't criticize the candidate I like, then this is what happens. They end up getting out of line and doing things that their base doesn't like. And Tulsi Gabbard right now is rightfully being criticized by people who used to support her, people who donated her, because this is disappointing. You got popular by being affiliated with Bernie Sanders and supposedly supporting all of the policy ideals that he supported. So now, if you're surprised that we're being critical of you because you're backing away from one of the most important policies that we've been fighting for, then don't be surprised because we want you to support Medicare for All. And even if you come around to it and you support it, just the fact that you wavered on this shows me that you are not going to fight for it. It's the same thing like Elizabeth Warren. Once you start wavering, you can never regain that trust back that you lost with me. So there's one person who will fight for Medicare for All, and that is Bernie Sanders. Period. End of story. There's no discussion to be had. If you want Medicare for All, you vote for Bernie Sanders. So it is very clear that the prospect of impeachment is driving Donald Trump nuts. 
And ever since it was announced that there would be an impeachment inquiry, he has been ranting and raving like a maniac on Twitter, even more so than usual, tweeting out presidential harassment this, presidential harassment that, and it's evident that he's unraveling. He's becoming more unhinged than he usually is, and it's like we need a new word to describe Donald Trump because unhinged really doesn't do it justice, but he's getting worse, and the reason why he's getting worse is because there's actually a considerable amount of uh, momentum for impeachment. Public support for his impeachment is rising, and it's rising fast. So just last week, public approval for impeachment was sitting at around 36%. Fast forward to today, and a new Harris X poll shows a 12-point jump in support for impeachment. A CNN SSRS poll shows a 6-point jump. A morning consult poll shows a 7-point jump. And overall, a net 13-point jump in support for impeachment according to aggregate polling data. So at this rate, he is set to outpace Nixon when it comes to public support for impeachment. Because remember, when we started talking about impeachment during the Nixon era, public approval for impeachment was only at 19%. But as time passed, eventually there was a solid majority that wanted to impeach President Nixon. But with Donald Trump, as we talk seriously about impeachment when we talk about the inquiry, well, public approval was still relatively low, but higher than Nixon's. It was at 36%. But now just in the span of a week, it's already jumped a net 13 points. Support for Donald Trump's impeachment is rising faster than Nixon's. So make no mistake about it, this is not good news if you're Donald Trump. And it's obvious why he's panicking. Now, before we saw the spike in support for impeachment, he was already, as I alluded to, acting like a lunatic. He suggested that the whistleblower should be executed. But now that public support for impeachment has increased considerably, he has accused Adam Schiff of treason, literally. Um, he then oddly said that he wanted to meet his whistleblower, which is um, not normal. He accused him of spying on the president, which is not true. And finally, he quoted someone who was deranged enough to raise the specter of civil war over impeachment. This is a quote from Pastor Robert Jeffries, who said, quote, if the Democrats are successful in removing the president from office, which they never will be, it will cause a civil war-like fracture in this nation from which our country will never heal. Now, the reason why Donald Trump quoted this lunatic is because he wants to scare you. Right now, a lot of people, even on the left, don't support impeachment because this is, let's face it, a fear-based decision. They worry about the consequences, and I am too. You know, maybe it could backfire. Because during the Clinton years, impeachment for Republicans did, in fact, backfire. It made him more popular than ever once it failed in the Senate. But that same thing might not necessarily happen again. It could be another Nixon, where public support for impeachment eventually increases and it permanently damages Donald Trump. We don't know what's going to happen. That's the point. So Donald Trump knows that there's a lot of uncertainty because a lot of people don't necessarily know how this will affect Republicans or Democrats. So he's trying to play on your fear. And I'm not someone who's going to argue that Donald Trump is, you know, politically savvy and he's playing 12-dimensional chess. He just knows. He can sense that people are afraid. He's trying to prey on your fears. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Donald Trump 
His impeachment is not going to catalyze a civil war, and even if it did, which it won't, but even if it did, um, well, we had a civil war over the institution of slavery, and we eventually recovered. I think that we'd be able to recover and heal eventually if we impeached this dipshit. So here's the thing. As public support for impeachment continues to increase, if it does in fact follow this trajectory, expect more insanity from the White House. It's already gotten very interesting, if that's the right word I want to use, I'm not sure. Um, maybe scary, but it's, it's, it's going to get worse. He is going to be even more unraveled. Remember, after he lost the House in 2018, the next day, he got into that tiff with uh, Jim Acosta of CNN, where he kind of stepped out from the podium in an attempt, I'm guessing, to uh, intimidate Jim Acosta. So the way that Donald Trump acts under pressure is he starts lashing out. He becomes unhinged, more so than usual. He's already unhinged, right? Um, but he becomes worse and worse. And you can expect him to get progressively worse if he sees that his administration could potentially be impeached. Even if you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to impeach him, that still isn't a good look for Donald Trump. Even if it fails, it could damage him permanently. Now, there's always the issue of what will happen. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, Democrats finish their impeachment inquiry and they realize that there is enough evidence to warrant impeachment and they vote to impeach him. Well, then, of course, it would go to the Senate for a trial. But what would Mitch McConnell do? Well, um, he recently said he'd have no choice but to take up impeachment, which is huge. That's huge. So even if it fails in the Senate, this could still damage Donald Trump. In fact, it's already starting to damage Donald Trump, according to public opinion polls, but it's still early. That could change. All I'm saying is watch him. He's going to get worse. He's going to get crazier, but understand that impeachment might actually be successful at reining him in a little bit. Um, he's going to get crazier. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But this this could work. I don't know if it's going to work. It could fail. But it's already having a pretty substantial impact. So um, it's fascinating to uh, see this play out. In September of last year, we talked about the tragic story of Botham John, who was a 26-year-old unarmed black man who was killed by police officer Amber Geiger in his own apartment. Now, Geiger argued that she mistakenly thought that she was in her own apartment and that Botham was an intruder, so she murdered him. And this is in spite of the fact that she was literally on the wrong floor. So something was off here. You know, it just it didn't add up. It was evident that Geiger was clearly guilty. But the thing about this story is that even though this man was killed in his own apartment. Nobody really expected there to be justice because unarmed black Americans are killed by police officers with impunity all the time and they're let off. So nobody expected this case to be different, even though it's that much more absurd than other cases. He was in his apartment, but I mean, there's so little trust in the criminal justice system in America that we just figured, oh, she's going to get off. This is pretty much inevitable. Although this case is actually different because we just found out that a jury unanimously convicted Amber Geiger of murder. And I'll be honest, I didn't have faith that this would happen. I assumed that she'd 
be let off. At most, I thought, you know, maybe she'd be convicted of manslaughter. Definitely not murder, though. But um, it feels good to be proven wrong in this instance. Now, CNN is going to give us some additional details in a report from the courtroom. Uh, the jury having reached a verdict, uh, Ms. Geiger and your team, would you please stand? We, the jury, unanimously find the defendant, Amber Geiger, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment. No outburst. You could hear the gaffes there inside the courtroom as the uh, the verdict was announced. Both them, John's family, the 26-year-old accountant who was uh, murdered by Amber Geiger about a year ago, uh, were inside that courtroom. They've been wearing red every day of uh, coming to trial here. Uh, that was both them, John's favorite color. Amber Geiger's uh, family also inside that courtroom. Outside the courtroom, you can see the heavy security presence here at the courthouse. You have to go through a second layer of security get to get to the courtroom that is at the end of the hallway uh, you could hear cheering outside that courtroom just shortly after that verdict was read here and this was a, a rather dramatic moment there were many people who didn't think that amber geiger would be convicted of murder in large part because one of the options that this jury had is that they could have convicted on a lesser charge of manslaughter this jury has been deliberating since about one o'clock central time yesterday we are now awaiting for uh, both of john's uh, attorneys to come out to prosecutors to come out as well as um, uh, the uh, the defense attorneys. Uh, there has been a, a great deal of uh, legal issues that have come up in, in this uh, in this case. The uh, the, the family of, of, of Amber Geiger had, and attorneys for Amber Geiger had been arguing uh, that uh, she had every right to defend herself because she had walked into the wrong apartment thinking someone was in her apartment. But clearly, this jury did not believe that and has now convicted her of murder. This is genuinely shocking. And I did not think that I would be saying that justice would be served here, but justice was served. Um, it's surprising. This doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden other black Americans and brown Americans who are killed by police officers with impunity will have justice. This isn't like the start of a new trend, but it's just one instance where... There actually was justice for a victim of police brutality, and that's really nice to see. Now, this is important. This is the first step to the healing process for both of John's family. But the thing about justice is even though it's important and it's really crucial in the healing process, a young man's life was taken. That life will never be brought back. He's gone forever. So even though justice is served and maybe his family and people in the community will have some comfort in knowing that, it still doesn't bring him back. It's still tragic. It's still really upsetting. A human life was lost. And even though there's justice, it doesn't make the situation, you know, any less sad. And um, Botham John's mom, Allison, was quoted before the trial basically saying this, Quote, it's just very, very, very difficult living without Botham. There are so many things that I want to talk to him about. It's just been terrible. I don't even know how to explain it. Sometimes I don't even know how to feel. So this is someone who is clearly happy that, you know, there's justice. The murderer of her son was brought to justice. But he's not going to come back. You know, that's... um. 
That's it. That's a sad fact of reality. So even though, you know, um, there'll be justice in this situation, I still can't help but feel so devastated for Botham's mom and his family and Botham, right? Because it's awful to be unarmed and killed by the police in any circumstance. That's never okay. But when you're in your own home where you should theoretically be the safest to be killed, I mean, if you are a black person in America, imagine the message that that sends to you. If you're a 14-year-old black boy thinking, I could literally be killed in my own apartment by a police officer. It's just sad. So all around, it's not going to bring him back. But the fact that justice was served, you know, it's a win that I will take. But it's still, it's still tragic. You know, um, we need real, robust, comprehensive criminal justice reform. And we need to screen people before hiring them to police departments. Clearly, this individual was not capable of serving. She was on the wrong floor and mistook Botham for her apartment. I mean, it doesn't get any more ridiculous than that. So we need better screening. We need sensitivity training. And it can't just be, you know, a one-and-done deal. We need continuous training weekly training possibly if that's what it takes to make these police officers more sensitive to the communities to teach them to interact with people of color and to socialize them with people of color so they're not only in these social circles of just white people and they view anyone who's not white as the other you know um we just we need to change the system so things like this don't happen and um I'll leave that there because I don't know what else to say about this. I'm I'm I'm, I'm relieved for Botham's family and his mom. I just wish that this never happened to begin with. So as many of you know, back in 2017, under Ajit Pai's leadership, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality in a three to two vote. Now, one of the most controversial and I think problematic elements about that repeal order was a provision that actually preempted states, meaning that the FCC tried to block them from passing their own net neutrality rules if they didn't like that the FCC undid net neutrality protections. So after this repeal was passed and it went into effect, there were numerous states that decided to rebel and subvert the FCC and pass their own net neutrality laws. This includes California, Washington, Oregon, among others. And obviously, this was challenged in court because this repeal was incredibly hasty. It was arbitrary. And that provision that blocked states from passing their own net neutrality laws, I mean, it was obvious that that was legally questionable. It didn't seem as if the FCC had the authority to do that. So this was taken to the courts, and I've been following the outcome as closely as I can, and we finally have an update. A federal court has, in fact, ruled on this issue. And uh, for the most part, the news is bad. We lost. We lost, and a federal court upheld the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. This is absolutely devastating. However, there's a kernel of um, 
hope in there. There's some good news. So as Harper Nydig of The Hill reports, a federal appeals court on Tuesday delivered a mixed ruling for net neutrality supporters and opponents alike, allowing the Federal Communications Commission's 2017 repeal to stand, but striking down a key provision blocking states from implementing their own open internet rules. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals also sent the repeal order back to the FCC, ordering the agency to revise it to take into consideration other issues like the effect that it will have on public safety, broadband subsidies, and the regulation of cable pole attachments. So federally speaking, this is very bad news. Although if you live in a state like New York, California, Oregon, Washington, the FCC cannot override your state's authority. So what this means is that some people will have net neutrality protections and others will not. Now, how this will affect the uh, market, I'm not sure, because will a company like Comcast choose to change the packages that they offer to some states and others? Will they start selling, you know, uh, internet packages like a social media and Netflix and Hulu type package? to, you know, the South while offering, you know, a total and complete internet package to residents in California, for example. I'm not really sure how this is going to play out, but what I do know is that this isn't necessarily the end of the story because since there's technically a loss on both sides to a degree, this could still be appealed. This could go up to a higher court. So we don't know if this is the end of the story, but for now, if you live in one of the few states that have enacted their own uh, net neutrality laws, you're protected. But we don't know if this will stand. But overall, the fact that this court upheld the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, um, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, Carl Bode on Twitter, who has been following the situation and has been reporting on the telecommunications industry for decades now, had this to say. One thing people need to understand is the FCC's order didn't just kill net neutrality, it greatly eroded the FCC's ability to police telecom monopolies, shoveling remaining authority to an FTC that lacks the authority or resources to consistently stand up to AT&T. That the entire core justification for the net neutrality repeal was based on flimsy to non-existent data appears to not have played too much of a role in the court's thinking. Odd thing about the ruling to me is that under the Administrative Procedure Act, a regulator is supposed to provide hard data proving its dramatic regulatory shift was warranted. The FCC's justification was net neutrality stifled investment, but that was proven patently wrong. You also have the whole thing where the telecom industry, presumably who else, paid some K Street shops to flood the FCC website with fraudulent comments by fake and dead people, something I guess we're just going to forget ever happened. Exactly. None of that was taken into consideration by um, a federal court. Now, I don't know what the best course of action is. I feel the inclination to challenge this. Like, if I were defending net neutrality, if I were that party, I would want to appeal, but at the same time, maybe a higher court changes the ruling and strikes down everything. Maybe says, you know what, the FCC can, in fact, preempt states and effectively block them from enacting their own net neutrality rules. So I don't know. This is uh, this is really demoralizing to see. And there are some people who are saying this is a huge victory, but this isn't a victory. Like I don't view this as a victory. Ajit Pai won. He got what he wanted, and he was praising this on Twitter. He essentially said this was, you know, the right decision.
Now, you know, taking it a step further and trying to preempt states, that was him just, you know, going the extra mile to make sure that he was doing the full bidding of internet service providers. But, you know, the fact that that would be something that stuck, it was questionable to begin with, so that's not too surprising. But the fact that he got his repeal upheld is incredibly troubling. So what matters now is that leaders, namely 2020 Democratic Party presidential contenders, speak out on this. Because if they appoint a new FCC chairman or chairwoman who undoes what Ajit Pai did, then that could be our only saving grace at this point. And Bernie Sanders spoke out about this on Twitter, saying, this ruling threatens to give more power to unaccountable companies like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon over what we see and do on the internet. We must fight to keep the internet free and open, not dominated by corporations. This struggle is essential to free speech and democracy. And that's exactly it. So, in terms of the legal battle when it comes to net neutrality, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, I know that the lawsuit regarding the Trump administration challenging California's net neutrality laws, which go further than any other state, they block zero rating and whatnot, that case was put on hold in order to see the result of this case. So who knows how this is going to play out. In my view, the way that we can still save net neutrality is to elect a presidential candidate who has been a vocal opponent of the telecom industry, who supports net neutrality. And Bernie Sanders speaking up here is a really good sign that we still have a fighting chance. If we elect him and he appoints a pro-net neutrality FCC chairman, then we could still potentially um, win. Now, he also could appoint more FCC commissioners that would flip it to, you know, a pro-net neutrality FCC commission. Now, you have to alternate if you're president. You have to appoint a Republican and then a Democrat. But there are some Republicans, I'm sure Bernie would be able to appoint, that, while they're still problematic, support net neutrality and would vote with his Democratic Party commissioner. So, I don't really know at this point. All I know is we lost. Um, not all hope is gone, but for the most part, we lost this battle. We lost a key component of this battle. The war isn't over, but we're defeated, at least in this battle. And that's a damn shame. Ajit Pai got what he wanted in the end, at least for now. But um, we just have to wait and see. This really is um, depressing news. Anyone who has followed me since 2017 knows that I am a huge advocate of net neutrality. And to see it go this way in the opposite direction, it just, it feels really disappointing, um, to say the least. I'm at a loss here. Bernie Sanders doesn't get nearly enough credit when it comes to his advocacy for LGBTQIA plus rights. And it's not just like he came around in 2013 when public opinion conveniently started to shift. He's been an ally for decades. In fact, his advocacy for LGBTQ plus issues nearly destroyed his career when he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, because he allowed a pride parade to take place in Burlington and a vehemently homophobic city council tried to literally oust him because of it. They wanted him gone. They wanted to destroy his career. But guess what? Bernie Sanders knew the consequences and he still decided to allow that gay pride parade to take place. And he didn't just stop there. He spoke out. 
He advocated for LGBTQ plus rights. And the reason why he did this is because he doesn't make calculations based on political expediency. He made calculations on this issue out of morality and human compassion. And this is why I absolutely, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I really value Bernie Sanders, and it's not like other Democrats are bad on this issue. I mean, they leave a lot to be desired with trans issues, but Bernie Sanders has been an ally when no one else was an ally, when homosexuality was socially stigmatized, and it still is to a very large degree, but Bernie Sanders was with us when it wasn't cool, and his advocacy for my community, it hasn't changed one bit. And going into 2020, he arguably has the most comprehensive platform when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights issues. And in response to a questionnaire that was sent to him by HIV plus magazine, he lays out some of his policy proposals and describes what he'd do to cap the cost of crucial prescription drugs required by HIV positive Americans and also what he'd do to fight discrimination against them when it comes to housing and employment. And one of the reasons why he is the strongest, in my opinion, when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues is because he is the one candidate out of a field of what, like 20, who has been firmly committed to single payer Medicare for all. And the reason why that matters is because there's a lot of health disparities within the LGBTQ plus community. There's a lot trans people don't have equal access to healthcare as cisgender Americans. And by supporting Medicare for All, Bernie Sanders is going to close the gaps that exist. These health disparities will be erased with his plan. And in response to a question about healthcare for HIV-positive people and trans Americans, Bernie Sanders laid out what he'd do to help this community. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All would not only confront the massive health disparities faced by the LGBTQ plus community, it would also cover gender-affirming surgeries, increase access to PREP, remove barriers to mental health care, and bolster suicide prevention efforts. Bernie's plan clearly states that LGBTQ plus people cannot be discriminated against by providers or denied health benefits. It's a truly intersectional plan that would establish health care as a right to every single person in America, no matter who they are or what they love. So let me repeat that. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All would cover gender-affirming surgeries. If you don't know someone who's transgender or have anyone in your life who's transgender, this is life-changing. Because people who are transgender, if you're poor, then you just can't have the gender-affirming surgeries that are deemed medically necessary by doctors. You can't have them because they're too expensive. So what a lot of trans people do is what a lot of other people who have uh, medical bills do. They will just do a GoFundMe to get the procedures that they need. Bernie Sanders would solve that. No more GoFundMe if you're a trans American. Why? Because you didn't choose to be transgender. You were born that way. So why should you be more disadvantaged than cisgender people? The answer is you shouldn't be. So Bernie Sanders would cover gender-affirming surgeries. I don't think people realize how transformative this would be for members of the trans community. 
it is uh, remarkable. On top of that, by increasing access to PrEP, which is essentially a preventative drug for HIV, which um, is given to people who are at risk of exposure to HIV or, you know, at greater risk of contracting HIV, Bernie would increase access to that, make it more widely available, and under his plan, cap the cost because you're not going to be paying more than $200 per year for any prescription drug under a Bernie Sanders administration. And the cost of that drug is around 13000 I want to say. So Bernie would change people's lives and he would allow LGBTQIA plus Americans to be at parity when it comes to healthcare with their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. Bernie is truly the real deal. He's the real deal. No other candidate is committed to single-payer Medicare for all, so you can't say definitively, unless they've created an actual plan to do so, that they're going to cover gender-affirming surgeries. Now, there's other things that need to be done. I mean, just finding doctors that offer you know service to transgender americans is really important if you live in a red state for example then it's more difficult to uh, get access to hrt you know hormone replacement therapy so that's another thing that needs to be addressed but also by making sure that doctors can't discriminate uh, on the basis of re religiosity and say you know what if you're transgender i think that's immoral i'm not going to serve you he is, you know, kind of addressing that in a roundabout way, but I do want him to go a step further there. But the fact that he'd cover gender-affirming surgeries really is remarkable. This is something that's not politically expedient. Socially speaking, transgender people are just not accepted. And it's weird because they're a part of the LGBTQ community. Gay people have become more accepted. Trans people, and especially non-binary people, are not accepted. Bernie Sanders is a trailblazer. He is a leader, not a follower. He's not waiting for public opinion to shift in favor of trans people. He's leading. And that's why I love him. Now, on top of that, in this interview, he laid out the rest of his LGBTQ plus agenda in a more general sense. And here's what he wants to do. Pass the Equality Act, which would expand the defined prohibited types of discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity passed the Every Child Deserves a Family Act and other bills to prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ plus people, meaning gay couples would be allowed to adopt. Strongly oppose any legislation that falsely purports to protect religious liberty at the expense of others' rights, meaning a baker cannot discriminate against a couple and refuse service to an LGBTQ couple on the basis of religiosity. Ensure LGBTQ plus people have comprehensive health care without discrimination or discrimination from providers. Protect the rights of LGBTQ plus people around the world by ensuring that written into the cortex of all global trade agreements are strong and binding human rights standards and strengthening the special envoy for LGBTQ plus rights within the Department of the State. Advance policies to ensure students can attend school without fear of bullying and work to substantially reduce suicides. Support police departments that adopt policies to ensure fairer interactions with transgender people, especially transgender women of color, who are often targeted by police unfairly and by instituting training programs to promote compliance with fair policies. Fight against discrimination against LGBTQ plus people by creditors and banks so that people will not be unfairly denied mortgages, credit cards, or student loans. 
loans. Bernie would also aggressively defend and promote the legal protections of fair housing and make sure that no one is denied housing based on race, color of their skin, national origin, religion, gender, sexuality, disability, or HIV-AIDS status. Repeal the Trump administration's bigoted ban on transgender people from serving in the U.S. military. Make it easier for LGBTQ plus workers to form a union so they can collectively bargain for fair wages and safe working conditions. Now, I'm going to provide you with a link in the description box so you can read the entirety of his answers because this is really long. It's comprehensive, so I can't address all of it, you know, in this one segment. But please read that for yourself because if you care about these issues... Bernie Sanders just lays it all out. Now, I'd be lying to you if I said that Bernie Sanders was perfect here. I still think that there is some room for improvement. So when it comes to trans issues, I do think that he needs to take it a step further and fully endorse the decriminalization at a minimum, hopefully legalization of sex work. That's really, really important. Now, Previously, he said he was open to that, but the reason why it's important related to trans issues and LGBTQ plus issues is because this really affects trans women, because when they fall into poverty, oftentimes they are pushed into that industry, and if we don't legalize and tax and regulate the sex work industry, we're not fully protecting vulnerable trans women who are susceptible to violence, namely trans women of color. Now, as I stated earlier, I would like to see a more ambitious effort to increase access to doctors that offer trans care and increase access to hormone replacement therapy, particularly in red states, because even though Medicare for All would make the cost of these treatments free at the point of service, I mean, if you live in certain areas where you can't access these treatments, I do want to see something with regard to that specifically and in increasing access to the amount of doctors that specialize in trans care. Now, I don't know how you do that. Maybe, you know, subsidize or incentivize doctors to cover trans people and accept more trans patients um but i would like to see that addressed so here's the thing supporting medicare for all it absolutely will close all of the health disparities in this country and it's not just closing health disparities uh in the lgbtq plus community this will close health disparities universally so bernie sanders here overall i would argue he's the best when it comes to lgbtqia plus issues Nobody else is saying gender-affirming surgeries will be free. Nobody has the record that he has on this issue. Nobody has been an ally to the LGBTQ plus community as long as Bernie Sanders. He was fighting for our rights, me as a gay man. He was fighting for me before I was even born. And that means a lot to me. So Bernie is... The real deal and his LGBTQ plus agenda would be truly transformative for members of the LGBTQ plus community. It's not perfect, but to say that it's a step in the right direction, a huge step in the right direction would be an understatement. So what I want to leave you with is my favorite clip of Bernie Sanders, where back in 1995 on the House floor, he defended members of the military who are gay. The same people that would vote to cut defense $177 billion, the same ones that would put homos in the military, the same ones that would not fund BRAC, the same Mr. ones Chairman. that would not clear Mr. up. Chairman. No, I will not. Sit down, you socialist. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. The gentleman, you. The committee will The lucidity of Mr. this Chairman. even the to appeal this. The order and the gentleman will suspend. Now, my ears may have... Playing, been playing a trick on me, but I thought I heard the gentleman a moment ago 
say something, quote unquote, about homos in the military. Was I right in hearing that expression? Absolutely. Putting homosexuals in the military. You said something about homos in the military. Was the gentleman referring to the many thousands and thousands of gay people who have put their lives on the line in countless wars defending this country? I'm was talking, that the group of people that the gentleman was referring to? I'm talking about the military people in the military do not support That's not the what we were bill. talking about. You used the word homos in the military. You have insulted thousands of men and women who have put their lives on the line. I'm talking about you and liberals like you that keep the foreign defense. So one thing that I love about Bernie Sanders is that he's always been clear about his stance towards American oligarchs. He does not like them. In fact, you could say that he loathes them. And one time channeling FDR, he even said, I welcome their hatred. And I love that. He's always been that way. But as of late, it almost seems as if he has sharpened his criticism of American oligarchs. And it's making them very nervous. Now, let me give you some examples. So, he recently tweeted simply that billionaires should not exist, point blank. And on top of that, in response to news that he outraised all of his Democratic Party primary opponents, he stated, The billionaire class should be very, very nervous. The working people of this country are ready for a political revolution. So, make no mistake about it, what he's saying to American elites is, I'm not afraid of you. In fact, I'm coming for you. So watch out. You've robbed us for decades and now we're coming for what is rightfully ours. So he's making all of these statements saying that billionaires should not exist. And of course, this is uh, very offensive to uh, billionaires. So they are going on the only platform that will give them access to voice their grievances about Bernie Sanders, of course, Fox News, and they are now whining about Bernie Sanders wanting to increase their taxes. For example, the former CEO of McDonald's, Ed Renzi, decided to actually throw the C-word around when describing Bernie Sanders, and no, not that C-word, I'm talking about communism, and I don't know how else to describe this segment other than saying this is a petulant child complaining about seeing a slight increase in his taxes. We're going to turn to taxes. 2020 candidate Bernie Sanders announcing a proposal this week that would take aim at companies that pay high-level executives much more than the uh, median employee salary. If his plan has been, is in place, and it ha if it had been in place last year, J.P. Morgan Chase would have paid up $991.6 million more in taxes. Walmart, $793.8 million. McDonald's, $110.9 million more. Joining us right now is Fat Brands International Chairman and the former CEO of McDonald's. USA, as well as famous Dave's Barbecue, Ed Renzi. And Ed, it is great to see you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good morning. Glad to be here. I just want to I just want to read you the, uh, the the headline of Bernie Sanders tax plan. And he says this Sanders releases income inequality tax plan. The plan would increase taxes on greedy companies that pay CEOs 50 times more than median workers. That's the headline of the actual press release. Greedy companies. What's your reaction? Well, I don't have much confidence in anything that Bernie Sanders says, frankly. Uh, there, no corporation in the world pays taxes. They collect money from customers for goods, services, and taxes. Uh, the customers will ultimately pay that. It's inflationary. It's ridiculous on its face, and he knows it. The Communist Party that's now parading around as the Democratic Party has got to stop this nonsense. We have a capitalist system, free markets, 
And they got to come to grips with that. There's no way Bernie Sanders is ever going to get elected. He's praying to make money or maybe become vice president candidate, but he's never going to get elected. He's absurd. The butthurt in that clip was palpable. And uh, let me just say this. His tears, they're delicious. <laughs> I loved every second of that, and I love how he's so sure that Bernie Sanders is going to lose, but I can't tell if he's trying to convince viewers that Bernie will lose or trying to convince himself that Bernie Sanders has no chance because um, he should keep wishing because if Bernie Sanders is president, people like him, they're actually going to finally have to pay their fair share, and that is long overdue but they've been getting tax cuts they've been able to control democracy and the economy and it's about damn time that we get someone in power that's fighting for the working class and not the oligarchs now the first dumb thing that he said was that you know no corporation in the world pays taxes they collect money from customers for good services and taxes and customers will ultimately pay that so if you increase taxes on large multinational corporations they're just going to pass that cost off onto consumers well that to me sounds idiotic because if you're going to increase the cost of goods pass that cost off onto customers then you're just going to piss off your own customers meaning that may be a bad business move you're allowing your greed to further gouge your customers and as a result that could cost you money because if you piss off customers and you have you know no desire for your goods to be purchased what happens that hurts your business. So if you want to be a dumbass and increase the cost of goods if your taxes go up and protest of your taxes going up in hopes that maybe your customers will blame government, they're going to blame you. They will blame you. Trust me about that. Because I worked in fast food before and also retail, but whenever the prices would increase, it's always the corporation that gets blamed. Now, People who, you know, attend these uh, these places, they like to voice their grievances with the workers who are making minimum wage, and that's not cool. You know, it feels bad. But nonetheless, they don't ever say, oh, it's the government's fault that you raised taxes. No, they're going to blame you. So if you think you're going to be able to scapegoat government because you're too greedy, because your taxes went up, um, that's just a dumb, dumb argument to make, and it's not fooling anyone. Now, he also said, you know, the Communist Party that's now parading as the Democratic Party has got to stop with this nonsense we have a capitalist system free markets and they've got to come to grips with that okay so i've got multiple things to say about that first of all um define communism because i bet that like 99 percent of the boomers who casually throw around the word uh communism he would not be able to describe it second of all bernie sanders is a social democrat he believes in a mixed economy so to a degree he is a capitalist to the extent that he prefers socialism to capitalism is irrelevant he is in part a capitalist he's not a communist he's not even a true democratic socialist if you look up the definition of that word so that's just fear-mongering that is useless second of all by throwing up your hands and saying you know what this is just how capitalism works get used to it peasants you're not helping to build your case. You're just admitting that capitalism is fatally flawed and you're confirming that we need to overthrow that exploitative and predatory economic system. So if you think that that's actually going to convince people that capitalism is good by saying this is how capitalism works, well, when we see how shittily it's working and how it benefits people like you and not us, you're just helping to drive down support for uh, capitalism. So keep it up because this person clearly... Uh, 
He doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's just lashing out. Like, he's mad that Bernie is going to raise corporate taxes and institute a wealth tax, and he doesn't like that. Period. Now, another elite, a crybaby billionaire, more specifically named Ken Langone, who was one of the founders of Home Depot, worth an estimated $4 billion, made it clear that he's not too happy about this Bernie Sanders guy, and he should probably cut the malarkey. Sanders the other day said the U.S. should not have billionaires. No more billionaires. Are you going to shoot me? Now, there are an increasing <laughs> number of billionaires in China. So is that what we want? Do we want all the money to go to you China know. and the billionaires? Are, and you said two cents. Let me just say what this is, because Elizabeth Warren is making a point of that. She says it's a modest tax. It's two cents on every dollar over $50 million in net worth. She says it goes up to three cents on anybody who has a billion dollars. People are calling that confiscation. It's on wealth. It's not income. Let's go back to Bernie Sanders for a minute. Oh, and here's Bernie Sanders. What the hell hell has he done for the little people? What jobs has he created? Here's Bernie Sanders' press release. Sanders' plan would increase taxes on greedy companies. That's the press release. He says greedy companies. Go ahead. Uh, Look, Bernie, Arthur, and I, and Pat Farris started Home Depot 41 years ago. We have over almost 500,000 people gainfully employed in that company today, all providing for their families, all building estates. We have 3,000 kids that started with us in the parking lot. That's the entry level. They're still with us, and they're multimillionaires today. Wow. Uh, You've changed uh, so many people's uh, lives. And they changed our lives. It was a a symbiotic thing. Uh, Bernie, stop being a blowhard. Show us, give us examples. You go for a job and you go to interview for a job. Tell me your qualifications. Tell me, show me your experience in life where you've done this or that or the other thing. At least I'll be able to say he's been there. He's done that. He can help. I don't know what any of that means. (laughs) That end rant there made zero sense. Completely incoherent. This individual is evidence that if you're a billionaire, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will automatically be smart. There's a lot of really dumb rich people. Uh, Donald Trump is, you know, probably the quintessential example of that, but this guy wasn't making much uh, sense there either. He was basically just creating word salad because he was visibly disturbed at the fact that Bernie Sanders wants to impose a wealth tax on someone like him who has a net worth of $4 billion. To see him cry, oh, it just felt so good to watch that. I loved it. Now, the host at the beginning of that clip She said, people are calling that confiscation a wealth tax. It's on wealth, not income. Now, you can call that confiscation, and I'd be fine if you agree to also call the exploitation of workers by billionaires confiscation as well. Because if Ken Langone did not exploit Home Depot's workers, he would not have amassed the wealth that he has. That in and of itself is a form of confiscation. He did not adequately compensate them for their labor because if he did, he wouldn't be worth $4.4 billion. Now, he also says, what has Bernie Sanders done for the little people? What jobs has he created? And the way that basically they measure your worth as a human being is how many jobs you created. Did you create one job, 10 jobs, 10,000 jobs? That's how... They view, you know, your worth as a human being. That's the only way that you can possibly contribute to society. Never mind the fact 
that Bernie Sanders has single-handedly elevated the issue of single-payer Medicare for All to a national level. Never mind the fact that Bernie Sanders got thousands of Amazon employees and Whole Foods workers raises unilaterally just by putting pressure on Amazon. Like, the only way Bernie Sanders would be worth a damn in this guy's mind is if Bernie Sanders was a business owner. I mean, these people are so one-dimensional. They're such one-trick ponies. And it's evident that they don't really have an argument against Bernie Sanders. And they know that the way that they argue against the wealth tax makes it seem as if they have this sort of a fuck you, I got mine mentality. So they can't just come out and say, don't you dare take my wealth. What are you talking about? They have to be able to code that and really veil it in some other language that makes it seem as if they don't actually care about their wealth, they just care about Bernie Sanders being antagonistic towards people in this country that are elites. He wants to take their wealth, and it's because maybe he's economically illiterate. Maybe it's because he doesn't understand the value of creating jobs. Well, all of that is wrong, and here's what I say to these billionaires who are whining about Bernie Sanders' wealth tax. Keep crying, bitch, because your tears are absolutely delicious, and when we actually do come for your wealth, excuse me, come for our wealth, because let me uh, remind you, they stole that wealth from you. Nobody can actually earn a billion dollars. They take that money. That's confiscation. So when we actually do take back what is rightfully ours, you're just making it that much sweeter, and I'm going to save these videos so I can come back and watch them, because uh, this is going to be glorious. When we take your wealth, I'm going to be so excited, and of course, I will rub it in, I will gloat, I will at you on Twitter, because I like seeing you cry. There's nothing that makes me happier than seeing a billionaire miserable, and that comes from a humanist who's against human suffering. But I'll make an exception when it comes to wealth and these billionaires. The billionaire founders of Home Depot can't stop complaining about Bernie Sanders because week after week he's proposing policies that will curtail the wealth and greed of these capitalist pigs. Now, I already talked about this segment where his uh, partner, Ken Langone, was on Fox News complaining about Bernie Sanders, but now in an interview with Neil Cavuto, the other Home Depot founder, Bernie Marcus, is going to complain about Bernie Sanders and explain how he can't even with Bernie Sanders. This is glorious. Take a look. Uh, don't bring up Bernie Sanders because that's a red flag in front of me. Because he's the enemy of every entrepreneur that's ever going to be born in this country and has been born in the past. Well, he represents about half the candidate's views. on. Well, this. we don't have our kids today don't learn uh, Western civilization. They don't learn history. History repeats itself. You see things happening over and over again. Uh, if you, you became president, what would you guys do? Uh, me? Probably move to Australia. <laughs> you can't you take know, that aquarium. You know, you well, what could he do? I mean, he can't do anything to us. He's going to affect my grandchildren. Love him or hate him, I will say that the toupee that Bernie Marcus is rocking this time is much better than the toupee that he wore on Fox Business last time because that just looked like he had a bird's nest on his head and this time it actually looks like he has hair. So, you know, I'm glad that he finally purchased a wig that looks better, but um, still doesn't mean he's any smarter. <laughs> He probably felt self-conscious because a lot of people made fun of him um, when he went on Fox News because it looked like a dead fucking carcass on his head. But I digress. I'm getting way off topic. Basically, my favorite part is when he said that if Bernie Sanders became president, he would move to Australia. And my response? 
Bye. In fact, me, a peasant, I will offer to literally buy you the plane ticket if you agree to never come back again. Because we don't want you in this country. We don't want you here. You are greedy, you are an oligarch, and you think that you are better than everyone else because you have money. But uh, no, that's not true. You are not better than us peasants. In fact, I'd argue that you're worse than us peasants because you're a thief. You have exploited the labor of Home Depot workers, and that led to you becoming a billionaire. You would not have been able to amass $5.9 billion in wealth had you not stolen that money from Home Depot's workers. So you're not better than anyone. Shut the fuck up. I mean, these sanctimonious pricks that I keep seeing on Fox Business, they are constantly getting on my nerves and they act like they can't even deal he said don't even bring up bernie sanders he's the enemy of every entrepreneur that's ever going to be born in this country no he is not the enemy of every entrepreneur that's ever going to be born in this country you are the enemy of people in this country because you're hoarding wealth which is not good for the economy and you keep encouraging these types of tax cuts so you are lobbying the government to make you and your buddies richer and what happens you're shifting the tax burden this is what you're advocating for you're advocating for a shift in the tax burden from you onto us because you don't want to pay taxes you'd rather have us pay taxes well fuck you like, I can't believe that these people have the nerve to go on national television and be so open about how greedy they are. Like, they have no shame whatsoever. He also says, our kids today don't learn Western civilization. They don't learn history. History repeats itself. Well, first of all, um, if history repeats itself, which it does... Um, wouldn't you be worried about the fact that you are supporting a fascist? We see the rise of white supremacy. We see a proto-fascist in the White House in Donald Trump, and yet you're choosing to prioritize tax breaks over defeating the rise of fascism. I mean, if history repeats itself, then either you are ignorant to the history or you just don't care. And whenever a Republican uses the words Western civilization, that's usually a dog whistle for white civilization right they can't just come out and say you know we don't we don't ever learn about white culture and white history in america we're so oppressed um so what they use instead is western civilization western civilization is disappearing because of immigration Ooh, be afraid i mean it's a code word so i don't i don't know what he meant there maybe he's just stupid and he wasn't intending to be racist i don't know but i mean i just expect the worst about these types of individuals they're loathsome they're disgusting if you're a billionaire like by definition, you're a bad person because nobody can possibly spend that much money in one lifetime, let alone 10. So for you to have that much money and pretend as if you have any moral high ground whatsoever, especially over someone like Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's just, it's nervy. It's nervy, it's irritating, and I, I hate these types of people. He also said, um, what can Bernie do? He can't do anything to us. He's going to affect my grandchildren. Okay, so that's true. Bernie Sanders will affect your grandchildren in the sense that he's not going to allow them to inherit billions of dollars while doing nothing, while sitting on their asses. That wealth, when you croak, will be invested back into the community. But one way that he will really meaningfully affect your grandchildren, which is better for them, is he's actually offering them a future by fighting climate change. Because your grandchildren will not be able to live if our planet becomes uninhabitable. So when they're older, if Bernie becomes president, I'd reckon that they'd thank Bernie Sanders because guess what? If you give them the choice between a habitable planet and 
lots and lots of wealth, billions of dollars of wealth passed on from you. Um, I'd, I'd probably guess that they're going to take the, uh, the planet because you can't spend money if you're dead. You can't spend money on a planet that doesn't exist, in an economy that can't exist without a planet to sustain it. So these people are so one-dimensional. They're obtuse. They're stupid. And anytime I see them, like, I don't even get angry anymore. I mean, I, I guess I do get a little bit angry and a little bit butthurt, to be honest. But it's like, I don't feel as enraged when I see these elites attack Bernie Sanders as I used to, because that just tells me that Bernie Sanders is the real deal. He is truly going to implement structural change and he's not wavering he's not capitulating he's not telling elites behind closed doors that they don't have to worry about him because they're afraid they're vocalizing how afraid they are on national television they're broadcasting how they can't stand bernie sanders well if you don't like bernie sanders then he must be doing something right because um if elites hate him then that tells you he's with the people that's what matters to me. That's why I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. Jacob Wool is a right-wing pro-Trump troll who has levied false sexual assault allegations against Robert Mueller, Pete Buttigieg, and now his latest victim is Elizabeth Warren. And he's alleging that she engaged in an extramarital affair with a male escort. Now, predictably, uh, this is false. There is absolutely zero evidence to substantiate this claim. And as anyone who is familiar with Jacob Wool expected, this backfired spectacularly. And he held a press conference to essentially announce the allegations against Elizabeth Warren. And <laughs> it resulted in reporters just trolling and yelling things at him. But we'll get to all of that for some basic details on this case. We go to James Walker of Newsweek who reports far-right conspiracy theorist Jacob Wool has been mocked on social media after sending out a media alert for a press conference where a former U.S. Marine will apparently claim he had an affair with 2020 presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren. Public figures and journalists have described Wool as a curious combination of utter vileness and noted that he managed to misspell conscience in his note to the press. The Trump supporter sent out a claim in a media alert this week shared by NBC News reporter Ben Collins on Twitter Wednesday, alleging that he will appear alongside a decorated former Marine who supposedly had an affair with Democratic 2020 primary candidate Elizabeth Warren. Jack Berkman, a lobbyist who worked with Wool to perpetuate false sexual assault claims against former special counsel Robert Mueller, also put his name to the alert. The note advertising a press conference today said, Jack Berkman and Jacob Wool will be joined by a decorated former U.S. Marine and bodybuilder who alleges he was involved in a long-term sexual relationship with presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. It went on to make claims about when the supposed affair began and how the former Marine was allegedly approached. These charges will shock the conscience of the nation, Berkman claimed in a statement. This young man's story is one that every voter needs to hear before casting a single ballot. Okay, so none of this is true. It's all entirely fabricated. Um, but before we go any further, I need to show you where <laughs> this press conference was held. It was held on their front porch. 
And what I love is that there's just a ball pit casually in the background and you have a couple of pizzas sitting on what looks like an end table. And my favorite part is rather than just printing a fucking banner, he literally brought out an entire fucking television so he could put up a still image that says Elizabeth Warren Cougar. (laughs) Oh my God. Like, why? (laughs) Why are you wasting your time? Especially with his record. I mean, he had two sexual assault claims backfire and now he's doing it again. And I mean, now he he's putting even, you know, seemingly less effort into this. It's embarrassing. And really, if you are someone who wanted to get this information out about Elizabeth Warren to the press, wouldn't Jacob Wool be the last person that you'd go to, given that he has zero credibility? And as uh, C.O. Bond Thompson put it on Twitter, I think she said it best. If I was a politician with steamy secrets, I'd simply leak them all to Jacob Wool. Problem solved. Exactly. Because when he says something, you automatically just know that he's probably making it up. He's probably just straight up lying. He fabricated it and he found someone to essentially lie on his behalf, presumably because that individual was paid off. This is what he does. He's a troll. And I think that maybe he views himself as a serious person, but nobody takes him seriously. And what's astonishing to me is just how fast these allegations fell apart. Because NBC News reporter Brandy Zadrowski tweeted, The patsy in Jacob Wool's latest sex smear says he got a scar from a sexcapade with Elizabeth Warren. His Instagram shows something else. And as you can see from his Instagram post here, he explains how he actually got the scar. Hit my back with a chain trying to take down a swing. So no, he did not get that from uh, being a little bit too kinky with Elizabeth Warren. He did it to himself. Now, one of the allegations was that um, Elizabeth Warren was like whipping him and he was whipping her or something like that. So um, it's funny that after that post was made, Jacob Wool contacted that reporter and was like, no, 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 that's not the actual scar. There's a different scar on his back that uh, was done to him by Elizabeth Warren during a sex session. I mean, this is so embarrassing. Who believes this? I don't think that there's anyone who believes this, including people on the right. You'd have to be an idiot to believe anything that he's saying. And my favorite part, like the cherry on top of the shit Sunday here is the triple X tattoo. I think that that is just so gnarly and hilarious. And it's perfectly fitting in this situation. Um, now, of course, I can't end the segment without showing you some clips from this press conference, uh, courtesy of Jordan Uhl and Ford Fisher, because it's it's so entertaining. No, no, half of Americans don't participate in BDSM. Actually, actually, yeah. fetish. Ex- is this about the briefcase? Half, half, listen, half of Americans. Maybe, maybe you participate in BDSM, but half of Americans don't. When it comes to honoring service here, we don't play around. And if you're going to keep impugning this serviceman's service, fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Then you're going to leave. Get that guy out of here. He's crazy. What? There's no stolen valor here. Go ahead and go ahead and remove him, Lewis. Get that guy out of there. He's freaking me out. Get that guy out of there. Oh my god, this is just this is amazing. My favorite part is how he kept trying to get the security guard to remove reporters, but he wouldn't. 
Oh my god. What a fail. What a miserable failure this was. Now, one moment that I also want to highlight is somebody asked, look, as a Trump supporter, why is it okay for Donald Trump to engage in an extramarital affair, but if Elizabeth Warren does it, that's somehow bad and immoral? Why does Trump get a pass when Elizabeth Warren, by your own standards, shouldn't? Well, his response was just unintentionally hilarious, and I don't, I don't even know uh, what to say about this. Well, I'll tell you what the difference is. I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is very clear. Trump is a peak alpha male. And so And so when you look at when you look at President Trump, him engaging in an extramarital affair, if that's even true, I don't think it is. I don't think it is would be understandable, would be normal, would be average. But when you look at Elizabeth Warren, you're talking about a very frail, very old woman who's going to be who's going to be hormonally challenged as it relates to the uh, All right, we're going to do two more questions. Mr. Summer, you haven't you have a chance, Mr. Summer. There you have it. It's okay for Donald Trump because he is a peak alpha male. <laughs> Because Donald Trump is exactly what I think of when, you know, um, somebody describes masculinity. This blubbering buffoon who's always sweaty, who uses an entire bottle of Jurgens Afterglow lotion on his face every single morning to make his skin glow in a really weird orange, almost like radioactive way. I mean, this is just, it's comical. So we'll end this segment by sharing a little bit of lighthearted trolling on Elizabeth Warren's behalf over this allegation. And uh, this is her responding to the accusation that maybe she's a cougar. It's always a good day to be reminded that I got where I am because a great education was available for $50 a semester at the University of Houston. Go Cougars. We need to cancel student debt and make college free for everyone who wants it. Yeah. So there you have it. I don't think she's too worried about this. And I don't think that anyone who has accusations uh, lobbed against them by Jacob Wool has to be too worried because nobody takes him seriously. Nobody should take him seriously. He's a joke. And I don't think he realizes how we view him as a joke. Collectively, as American citizens, we view him as a joke. Even if you're on the right, there's no way that you can actually take this individual seriously. He's a troll. And, um, you know, he keeps playing a really dangerous game where you are lobbing these false accusations that people eventually it's going to catch up to you. Eventually, somebody's going to sue you for doing this. Um, but, you know, he deserves it because he keeps doing this. He is literally slandering people's character in order to defend Donald Trump. And um, it's hurting his reputation. And long term, this is not going to be good for him because, I mean... It's just, it's bad. It's a bad move. You don't want to be known as the individual who was lobbing false accusations at people left and right all to defend Donald Trump. I mean, that's not a good look. Like, I support Bernie Sanders. I would never lob a false accusation against one of Bernie Sanders' opponents. I think that that's immoral. And I would rather lose with integrity than win by doing it in a dirty way. But when you're a Republican and you have no morals and you defend Donald Trump and you're a sycophant, then this is what you have to resort to. Anyone who is an opponent of Donald Trump, who he perceives to be a threat to Donald Trump, has to be smeared. Well, um... 
he's going to keep doing this and it's going to backfire every single time and I'm going to make fun of him every single time because this really is unintentionally hilarious. So it's been a while since I talked about Andrew Yang, but I do want to take some time to focus on his campaign because he's surging. I think that Andrew Yang is someone who is very personable. I think he's running a dynamic campaign, and it's easy to see why he has a lot of momentum. And let me just say this, seeing him surpass Kamala Harris in at least one poll in California it warms my heart because we all love an underdog story. We love seeing, you know, a corporate Democrat, an establishment-backed candidate be surpassed by someone who is largely an outsider, and I absolutely love it. But what's interesting is that, you know, my response to Andrew Yang has been either hot or cold. Sometimes I vehemently disagree with him. Other times I agree with him. Overall, I like him, I just think he's a nice person, but politically, I've come to realize that I think the reason why, you know, I'm so hot and cold, or hot or cold on Andrew Yang is because we have different worldviews, and sometimes our worldviews overlap, other times our worldviews clash. He's a capitalist, and he doesn't deny that, he, he says he's a capitalist, but I'm a socialist. I do kind of view Andrew Yang as someone who leans libertarian. I don't think it would be fair to describe him as a libertarian, but I think it's safe to say that he does have some libertarian tendencies, um, especially when it comes to economic issues, and that's really where I take issue with him on. So, for example, I like UBI, but I don't like that he'd fund his freedom dividend using a VAT tax, which is generally a regressive tax. And I also don't like that that program is opt-in. Because I don't think that it's fair to force poor people to choose between UBI and food stamps when rich people aren't going to have to make that decision. If it's universal, it should just be universal. No questions asked. But, you know, that's some worldview differences. However, that doesn't mean that Andrew Yang's more libertarian tendencies are always bad because there's one policy that is fairly libertarian or progressive. It's a little bit of a combination of both that he recently endorsed that I absolutely love. This is what he said on the Hill about decriminalization of drugs. I would decriminalize opiates that are being used uh, for personal use and aren't being distributed. So in addition to decriminalizing marijuana, I would decriminalize opiates for personal use. That's a big deal. I mean, does that include heroin? Yes, it does. I mean, at this point, what's happened is you had this OxyContin addiction that has morphed into fentanyl and heroin, right. which are frankly more accessible and sometimes less expensive uh, than the OxyContin that started the addiction chain. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Portugal model, what they've done? Because it's very similar to what you're saying. They essentially decriminalized all drug use, including heroin. They have injection sites where people can go and be dosed, but also have access to treatment rather than being thrown in prison. We're not talking about dealers here. We're talking about individual yeah, addicts. Individuals, I mean, is yes. that is that essentially, is that consistent with what you're talking about here? Yeah, I was inspired by Portugal's success where um, in the wake of this change in approach, they saw a massive reduction in both overdose rates and substance abuse rates. So I'm for safe injection sites, safe consumption sites, 
uh, and I'm for referring addicts to treatment instead of jail and letting them know this. So that right there is absolutely remarkable. And look, he deserves a lot of credit for that. And he's even outflanking Bernie on this issue. You know, credit where it's due. This is fantastic. And this is why I really like candidates like Andrew Yang being included in this race because they bring new ideas to the table and then they force other candidates to compete with them from the left. So I like what he's doing. I love that he took that stand. And, you know, you can see why this is popular and also why strategically this is smart because this is something that would be appealing to libertarians because it promotes individual liberty but simultaneously it also promotes progress so you see the overlap there you know progressives and libertarians can obviously get behind something like that so i love that he came out and said that he'd like to model our drug policies after portugal's and you know on the Subject of individual liberty, he recently also came out in favor of classifying digital data as personal property, which I think is a great idea. And it's why I'm so glad that he's in the race, even if he's not my number one. So, I mean, when I agree with him, I agree with him wholeheartedly, usually. And, you know, I absolutely am ecstatic about some of the ideas that he's bringing to the table. But, you know, he does tend to uh, inexplicably betray what I perceive to be libertarian-leaning uh, tendencies by endorsing policies that are just, you know, nonsensical, in my opinion, that are against the First Amendment, that would otherwise be backed by, like, establishment candidates, and I can't fathom why he would take this position. Case in point, here's what he said about Julian Assange. Do you have a, do you support Julian Assange? Um, you know, uh, I think Julian Assange should stand trial. Um, um, you know, I am generally pro-whistleblower mm -hmm. and, like, uh, pro, um, people that try and call out bad behaviors but in that particular case like he, he did end up disclosing some information that really had no useful purpose except for uh, potential damage to our infrastructure like the undersea cables location and some other things um, so I certainly would not be in favor of like a, you know like um, a I th yeah I think he should stand trial thank you so that's a big yikes for me that's a big yikes for me now say what you will about Julian Assange I've talked about this on the channel before um, this is not about Julian Assange, in my view. This is about protecting the First Amendment, protecting whistleblowers, um, allowing our government to be challenged by journalists and, you know, holding our government accountable for war crimes that we're committing. So the fact that he would take that position, it doesn't make sense to me because it seems like he's intentionally trying to undercut his libertarian appeal in order to cater to the more establishment demographic within the Democratic Party, you know, uh, primary base. But on top of that, he was recently on a CNBC reporter's podcast and what he said about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, I found very disturbing. The Republican economists I talked to uh, who praised the efficiency of what you proposed contrasted it with uh, the wealth tax that Sanders and Warren have talked about and said it just won't work. It won't raise the money. It will trigger a lot of evasion. There are measurement problems. Do you agree with that? Do you, th do you think the wealth tax is a, is a bad idea? I think the wealth tax uh, is an idea in spirit that makes sense given the uh, wealth distribution, but in practice it would have massive implementation problems. There would be capital flight. Uh, wealthy people would renounce their citizenship. Um, and the bigger problem isn't even the money. It's the annual inventorying of their assets, that uh, the truly wealthy in this country have zero interest in submitting uh, to an annual audit of all of their assets. 
um, they barely know <laughs> what all their assets are. And the last thing they're gonna do is report them every year and then pay a toll. So you would have massive compliance problems um, and to me, there are, there are better ways to, to make this economy fair. Though I understand the spirit of it and the intent of it, but I agree that it would be uh, somewhere between problematic and a disaster in practice. So to say that a wealth tax would be somewhere between problematic and a disaster in practice, I think that that's harmful for left-wing discourse because that's not true. That is not true. And the person who brought this question to your attention was citing what Republican economists say about that. Of course, they're going to say that a wealth tax is harmful because Republicans, they are the elitist party that looks out for the well-being of elites and the wealthy. If they don't want to conduct yearly audits, then throw them in jail. I mean, be harsh. You have to crack skulls as president, especially when it comes to elites, because they have too much power. So we have to rein them in and understand that this is class warfare that we're talking about. This is not a war that was started by the poor. This was started by elites. But I mean, for him to say that a wealth tax could be a disaster tells me that he'd be willing to let the wealthy off after they've robbed the poor blindly for decades. And I find that egregious. I find that egregious because think about this. Why is it that we only think about what elites want when we're designing policies? Do we ever consider what normal Americans want? I mean, what, more than 80% of the country didn't want net neutrality to be repealed, but it was still repealed anyway? Uh, a majority of the country wants Medicare for all, but we're still not doing it. But when we start talking about policies that impact elites directly, then we have to consider, oh, well, maybe they won't like that. Too fucking bad. They can leave the country. Fuck them. We don't need them in our country because these are thieves. What they are doing is a form of theft because you can't possibly become a multi-billionaire. You can't amass millions of dollars in wealth unless... You steal from your workers unless you exploit labor. That is theft. So forgive me for not caring about what these elites want. And I find it really frustrating that Andrew Yang would actually legitimize that right-wing narrative because we need a wealth tax. It's time that we tax these dickheads and start reinvesting the wealth that they're hoarding into the economy so we can help normal Americans. Now, that's not to say that he is against helping normal Americans because, of course, he's running on the freedom dividend, right? So I believe that he believes he has the best strategy to help Americans. But you need really a strong structural change platform. And part of that means... Getting this wealth back that elites stole from Americans, that's completely crucial. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't like Andrew Yang. I think that it's really important that if you disagree with a politician, you lob constructive criticism against them because no politician is perfect. We should prioritize policy over personalities. So when it comes to um, Marianne Williamson, I absolutely love that she elevated the issue of reparations. I love that. Um, she's better than Bernie on that issue. Does that mean I support her overall? No, I don't like that she doesn't support single-payer Medicare for all. Um, I like that Tulsi Gabbard elevates the issue of ending regime change wars. I just wish 
that she would also support single-payer Medicare for All and talk about ending the drone wars and ending U.S. imperialism and closing down our military bases. Um, Bernie Sanders is phenomenal on a number of issues. He is great when it comes to the issue of LGBTQIA plus rights, but I want him to commit to legalizing sex work. I want him to get on board with a policy uh, like the one that Andrew Yang supports, where you decriminalize opiates. I think that that would be fantastic. So this isn't about, you know, protecting the candidates that we like. This is about saying... If you're going to represent us, then I want you to listen to my criticism. And the good thing about Andrew Yang is that I do like that he does seem inclined to listen to criticism. Because when I brought him on my show and I told him about the worries that I had with the way that he was implementing UBI, you know, a month or so later, probably not because of me, but a month or so later, he changed his policy to kind of address the criticism that me and others were uh, using to talk about his form of UBI. And I find that incredibly admirable. So this is why, you know, during these primary races, we want this to be a race to the top. We don't want this to be a race to the bottom. And part of that is really keeping these candidates in check. So while I like Andrew Yang, while some of his ideas are fantastic, I am not going to bite my tongue and, uh, you know, not criticize him if he says something that I think is harmful. But, you know, on the other side of the same coin, if he does something that's great and he implements a policy that I really, really like or promotes a policy that I really like, then I'm going to say that's awesome. I hope you pressure Bernie to, you know, adopt that policy. Like, I want them to go tit for tat, right? You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren proposes student loan debt cancellation, then Bernie one-ups her and proposes 100% student loan debt cancellation. This is what primaries are about. And um, the reason why I'm talking so much about, you know, um, why we should not gatekeep and allow criticism of candidates is because what we're seeing right now online is a lot of people lash out when they see their candidates critiqued, be it Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and even Bernie Sanders to a degree. But politicians are running because they're saying that they want to serve us. So they can demonstrate that they are committed to serving us during the primary based on how well they respond to criticism. And thankfully, Andrew Yang has been one of the few candidates who has responded positively to constructive criticism. So if I see area for improvement, I'm going to tell them about it. Hello everyone, I am here with 2020 Congressional Candidate from Wisconsin's 3rd Congressional District. His name is Justin Bonner. Justin, he's here to talk about his campaign. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'll admit I was a little bit apprehensive about bringing you on because I like to kind of make myself the best beard in all of progressive politics, but you kind of challenge my uh, dominance there, if you will. So, um, you know, I I'm a little intimidated, to be to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> we just got to go for the full angles beard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, you know, well, on another hand, it is nice to get some beard representation in progressive politics for once. <laughs> so, uh, basically, I, I wanted to bring you on because your campaign is dynamic. I really like what you are talking about. You're a software engineer and you are an ordinary person that decided to challenge uh, an establishment Democrat. His name is Ron Kind. And I went over your platform and I really like what you are proposing. Uh, Medicare for all, and you are very clear, single payer Medicare for all, yes. ranked choice voting, free college, workplace democracy, clean elections, uh, a Green New Deal. You want to abolish ICE, abolish the NSA, and abolish the CIA. Now, what's interesting is that as a software engineer, 
near, you know, online privacy is something that's really important to you. And before uh, we went on, you shared an article from 2014, um, and this was about, and I haven't heard about this company. It's called LavaBit, and this is someone who ran a startup for encrypted private email addresses that was essentially um, challenged by the government to uh, reveal the information of their customers. And this was really influential to you and important to you. So let's talk a little bit about why you decided to run and why this issue is uh, paramount to your campaign. Certainly, I decided to run purely on the basis of policy. If there was somebody else running who is uh, equal or better to me on policy, then I wouldn't have bothered for it. It's not like it's, um, it's not, I'm not running to be a congressman. I'm running to get the policy done. And uh, like you said, with the uh, abolishing the NSA stuff, it's good. It's uh, as good a place to start as any. So I read that LavaBit article five years ago now, and that really boiled my blood, as it were, with the NSA. And it makes me angry that our government can act like that in such a blatantly unconstitutional way. Frankly, it's criminal, and we just need to get rid of it, period. There's no reforming it. There's no, well, if you tweak it a little bit, maybe it'll be okay. I say just get rid of it completely. Yeah, and I like that you're taking this bold stance. And a lot of 2020 candidates, they're elevating issues that aren't really being discussed. We're seeing talks of national rent control, talks of reparations for American descendants of slavery, and we're talking about now abolishing the NSA and the CIA with you. And I really find this fascinating because when I read that article, and I hadn't seen that or heard of this, so I'm glad that you shared that with me, it it really sounded like a story that you would hear from an authoritarian regime where, you know, a government would come in and just be brazenly unconstitutional and demand this information. It's a violation of privacy. It's a violation of trust. And um, it's nice that we'd have someone who's a software engineer, someone who's actually technologically literate in Congress advocate, because I know that everyone saw the, uh, you know, the uh, congressional hearings with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and some of the questions that were asked, it was just, it was cringeworthy. So it'd be nice to have a little bit of a change <laughs> in someone like you. It's great to hear. I think I'd definitely be an improvement over Ron Kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think so as well. Now, can you talk about Ron Kind a little bit? Because he's someone who doesn't necessarily have that much national name recognition. So um, explain why, if you're progressive, if you are a democratic socialist, it's better for people in the third district of Wisconsin to support you over Ron Kind. Certainly. Ron Kind's a pretty standard corporatist, centrist, third-way Democrat. I think he was actually leading the New Democrat Coalition for a few years there in Congress. So there's nothing too much to say about you know him on a personal level or anything like that. He's just standard cookie-cutter corporate Democrat. And the policies are all the centrist right wing compromise with Republicans. But, you know, we all know what we're compromising with Republicans really means. Yeah. Yeah. It means laying down and dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's nice to see so many candidates step up because what I would like, even if, you know, I can't imagine a situation where we get like a majority of progressives within the Democratic Party, you know, within 10 years, but just increasing the size of that block in Congress I don't think people realize how transformative that really could be. So it is important that we get voices like you elected. So talk a little bit about your campaign and um, what you're running on and what you're doing because you're not taking corporate PAC money. You're running a fully grassroots funded campaign. So what are you doing to kind of get out the word in your district? And what issues do you think you'd fight for if you were elected? Sure. 
I'm trying to get out the word by really focusing really heavily on canvassing. I've gone door to door and knocked on, I think, a couple hundred doors myself. I don't have the exact number right now, but it's definitely been <laughs> pretty busy. In fact, I can show you the uh, canvassing handout that I hand out right here. Yes, as you can see, it's nothing but policy. You know, That's there's great. no picture of me shaking a baby's hand or whatever. And, <laughs> no kissing you know, a baby I'm on the forehead. <laughs> no kissing a local businessman on the forehead. It's just my name, what I'm running for, uh, election date, website, and then the rest of it's just policy and justifications for the policy. So this sheet in particular talks about Medicare for all, ranked choice voting, abolishing the NSA, money out of politics, free public higher education, and the Green New Deal. That's great. I like that you're really like you're putting policies front and center because what a lot of politicians try to do is they try to make this like a personality contest and try to be like, you know, oh, I'm charismatic. I've got the charm. I can talk right. I could do the thumb point and voters love that. They don't love that. But, you know, it's nice to see someone put the policies front and center because that's really all that matters. Like when you're running for Congress, you should be leading with your policies and the fact that some politicians they don't even have an issues page on their website. It's absolutely mind blowing to me. So it's I nice agree. to see, you know, you really put lead with this. Now you talk a lot about ranked choice voting, and this is something that is just kind of near and dear to my heart. Why do you think that's something that's important? Frankly, I really don't like the two party system. It makes us choose between two usually pretty bad candidates, and it punishes multiple candidates from running in the same party. Like um, in this election. If, say, there was another progressive running, at the moment there isn't, although there is someone who's considering it, so we'll have to figure something out there. If we were to hypothetically both run, we'd run into a situation where oh, it'd be two progressives versus one conservative Democrat, and that puts the progressives at a really bad disadvantage there. So in that situation, we'd have to, you know, work something out between the two of us so that only one of us was running up against Ron Kind. Right, With ranked choice voting, of course, we wouldn't run into that problem because then voters could just rank their choices on the ballot and you could have as many progressives running as you want. Totally eliminates the fear of vote splitting, which is super important. There's a piece of legislation. I'm not sure if it's been uh, reintroduced in this session, but uh, Ro Khanna was the sponsor of this legislation. I believe it was 3057. And this would institute uh, nationwide ranked choice voting, but it also did a couple of other things. Um, it ended gerrymandering, and it also increased the district magnitude in every single American district from one to two to three, meaning that rather than us just getting one representative, we get multiple representatives. And what's nice about that is when you look to other countries that have higher district magnitudes, they usually don't just have two parties. They usually have, you know, uh, four to five, sometimes six parties. And of course, in America, it's not like we only have two parties. There's hundreds of parties technically, but it's just a matter of the institutions that we have, you know, um, it just leads to two parties. So we need people to be able to, you know, run in parties that aren't Democrat, that aren't Republican, and actually win. And that's what matters. And that's why I think ranked choice voting is really important, because this would facilitate the rise of multiple parties. And I've always kind of maintained that we don't just need like a third party, we need like 
five, six, mm-hmm. maybe seven parties. Now you don't want to get too crazy and have like 12 <laughs> parties because then, you know, the ideology starts to get a little bit watered down. But I think that if we just have more variation than center right and far right, you know, it, it might do wonders for, you know, American policy, policy outcomes specifically. I don't know. <laughs> if we had 12 different parties, at least nine of them would be different leftist fraction parties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would totally see that. Yeah, because, you know, there's just, we don't, we don't feel represented, and a lot of voters don't feel represented, which is why when you look at, you know, um, voter identification polling, most people identify as independents. You know, uh, the Republican Party, they're a minority party, technically. Democrats are a little bit better off, but still not by much. So yeah, this I think is Democrats so are only 33% or so, and Republicans only about 25%. Yeah. So most people are not being adequately represented. And that's just it's crazy because, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on being a democracy, the oldest democracy. Um, But how representative is that democracy? Not very much. Not very much at all. So uh, uh, what I wanted to talk about is abolishing the CIA because we kind of touched on NSA, kind of switching gears a little Mm -hmm. bit. But this is something that is probably a little bit more controversial. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't Bernie Sanders float something like this, like in the 70s or 80s? I'm not sure if he still believes it. But tell me the uh, why this is something that's important, because I feel like this is such a new issue that um, most people don't know the reasoning and why this is important, but how would you sell this? Sure. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the historical actions of the CIA. I can see some of the books behind you there. Yeah. (laughs) A Chomsky book. So I'm sure you know all the uh, CIA actions, including the September 11th, 1972, you know, the original 9-11 that we executed on Chile, stealing their democracy from them and installing a far-right dictator. And of course, that's only one example. We did the same to Iran. That's why they hate us. You know, it's not yeah. because we have freedom. <laughs> Let's see. I think Venezuela might have actually been the only South American country that we didn't successfully overthrow the government in. Yeah, I could be mistaken, but I think that's correct. And we've certainly uh, been trying. Um, and if we oh, haven't yes. tried to just outright overthrow them, it's always been a constant ploy to get their natural resources because they they have a lot of oil. Yeah, I, I think that that's really important because we are supposedly invading these other countries like Iraq, you know, and Afghanistan, and we do this under the guise of freedom and democracy, which I, I can't even say with a straight face because it's so laughable. But I mean, Allende in Chile was elected and we overthrew him, which is insane. You know, we're, we're not promoting democracies around the world. And a lot of this has been done through the CIA. And what a lot of people, I I think, fail to realize is that the drone program in the United States is run by the CIA with a fairly large amount of autonomy. The president can Mm. certainly rein them in as commander-in-chief, but this program is killing so many civilians. So when you say abolish the CIA, what I hear is it's about damn time people are bringing this up and talking about this because I don't think people really realize how destructive the CIA has been mm. around the world. And it's part of the reason why people hate the United States around the world. When you look at mm. global polling, they kind of view us as, you know, a destabilizer. And mm. we're kind of veering into foreign policy. So I think that it would be probably useful to talk about that. How would you be different? Because I see something really problematic happening. I see the Democratic Party by and large shifting to the right when it comes to foreign policy. You have mm. a few exceptions. What would you do differently to kind of try to pull that Overton window back to the left? Well, I'd be as anti-war as you can be. I'd never vote for a war. There would have to be some 
unforeseeable, extraordinary circumstances to make me vote yes on a war. Yeah. So yes, and uh, I, in terms of foreign policy, I do things like Omar does, where you can criticize Israel. I wouldn't be afraid of being called anti-Semitic. I mean, it's not like I'm planning on being in Congress for a whole career or anything. Yeah. Ideally, I'd only do it for you know a term or two, and then we can get the policies through. I don't intend to do it as a whole career. Yeah, that's nice because. Um, a lot of people get into politics because they're career minded, um, you know, and, and you kind of remind me of uh, Lawrence Lessig, but at, you know, the congressional level where you just have like this agenda, we're going to get in past these policies and then I'm out. I don't need to stay here longer. Um, I don't care about any of that. I don't care about my career. I'm just a normal dude and I want to get X, Y, and Z policies implemented. I think that's fascinating. Although if you are successful at implementing these policies, people are going to want to keep you there. I bet <laughs> because there's not a lot of like representatives and we kind of like hold on to and cherish and sometimes um, deify progressives, you know, maybe that's not the right word, but we overly like we, we really rely on them because there's so few and even people who, you know, they kind of run as progressives. They kind of go quiet like uh, Jamie Raskin. He's a fairly good congressman, but, you know, he's not necessarily the firebrand that I thought he would be um, when he was elected. So if you are, you know, doing these things and you're heavily effective, I can guarantee this will be your career. Um, regardless if you want it to be or not. But it's nice that you don't have that like as your goal because that means that you're not going to be making these political calculations. You're not going to think, oh, well, this vote could cost me my seat. You're just thinking, you know what? Fuck it. I just want to get in past these policies. And that's really nice. Yeah. And if I have to say something controversial that's true, I'll be like, hey, sweet, maybe I'll lose. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I kind of feel like I would be the same way because being a member of Congress, it seems like something that would just be pure misery to me. Um, I would never want to Frankly, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I get the sense that you're kind of doing this like out of obligation, like, all right, nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else in this district is running. Um, so I need to do this and I need to um, get these policies passed. Ron Kine isn't going to do it. Let's mm -hmm. just pass these policies and then I'm going to retire. <laughs> Absolutely. If there was another good progressive with policies basically the same as mine, I'd let them do it. They can take it. <laughs> That's awesome. I really like that. And I feel like... Um, you know, that shows people that you are with them and you are committed to the policies. And I don't think you have to do much more to really um, convince them. So let me ask you this in terms of timetable. I really like to kind of gauge where candidates are at. Um, let's say, hypothetically speaking, you're elected and you get, you know, this, we all get this best case scenario where we have a Bernie Sanders presidency and, you know, a blue Senate and a blue house. And we kind of have this limited window of opportunity, at least two years to pass these policies before the next election. What would you just as an individual lawmaker prioritize? Like if you could pick three policies, what do you think feasibly we could get passed? I'd say my number one priority, at least, would be ranked choice voting. Because if and uh, secondly, money out of politics, because if you can get those two things, then you're not stuck with two years. And then I guess third would be, you know, Medicare for all, because I don't much care for people dying because they can't afford health care. Yeah. Yeah. Medicare for all is really important. And um, I feel like it's a little bit sad that now on the campaign trail, people who support Medicare for all. They have to go out of their way to clarify no single payer Medicare for all because mm -hmm. we've seen a sort of co-optation of the rhetoric used by progressives. I mean, Kamala Harris just mm -hmm. straight up calls her bill Medicare for all when it's literally not Medicare for all. It's a multi-payer mm -hmm. system. So, you know, it, it's nice to have people fight who are not going to be doing the bidding of large multinational corporations. So 
I'm pretty sure that you don't have to do much more to convince my audience. At this point, I feel like we're kind of preaching to the choir because people just want to vote for people who are ordinary, who are going to fight for them. So let me know how we can help, how a viewer, maybe not in the 3rd Congressional District of Wisconsin, can get Justin Bonner elected. How do we help you help us? Sure, you can spread the word about me. You can follow me on Twitter. You can always donate on my website. That's justinbonner.com. Donate button. The donate button isn't exactly hidden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we uh, can we phone bank for you yet? I don't have any phone banking set up yet. Okay. I Personally, know. Personally, I always think that uh, canvassing is the best way to do it. Yeah, just to actually see them face to face. Yeah, for sure. Personally, I don't really tend to pick up the phone when I get random calls. It's because I get a lot of spam calls. Yeah. In fact, I even got one spam call recently. They said they were the Bernie Sanders campaign, and they wanted me to make a donation. Please give me your credit card number. Ooh. <laughs> That's pretty dirty. That's pretty sketchy. That's a dirty one. Uh, see, the worst that I got was um, I got a really nice voice message from this sweet lady who told me that she's just returning my call about my in inquiry to earn $10,000 per week. And I'm like, oh, this totally sounds legit and not like a pyramid scheme. I should definitely give her a call back. <laughs> I will say, though, and I will encourage you to do phone banking for people who live outside of the state, um, because I, the way that I view this is kind of like a national movement. Like, I don't just think about this as this is Justin Bonner fighting for the people in that third congressional district of Wisconsin. I kind of view this as, you know, you're going to get in and you're going to pass national policies that help all of us. And I use this in example in every single interview that I do. So I'm sure people are sick of it. But like the Ilhan Omar's bill to cancel student loan debt, that's going to affect me. And she's not my representative, you know. So I really I, I think that I always try to go out of my way to encourage people to help candidates even not in their state. But definitely, if you live in the third district, um, I totally agree that canvassing, knocking on as many doors as you can, that is the most effective thing. Because, you know, I have no doubt that you'll be outraised by the corporate Democrat because they're a corporate Absolutely. Democrat because they sell out to corporate interests. But, you know, you are doing this grassroots and people power can override money. Let me ask you this. Um, what I've heard is that if you raise at least 10% of the corporate Democrat, it seems like you are more viable. What do you think you would have to raise in terms of money? And how many doors do you think you'd have to knock on? I'm not sure if you guys have done any projections yet to actually defeat Ron Kind. Well, Ron Kind, I believe, has about 2 to $2.6 million in cash in hand right Yikes. now. So we are not even going to approach that. Yeah. But if we can knock on enough doors, I don't think it will matter. Because in this district, about 75,000 people voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016 mm. in the primary. In order to win this uh, primary election, and it's a pretty heavily uh, Democrat, ge Democratic gerrymandered district, mm. we'll need around 30, maybe 35,000 votes to win. Mm. So if only about half the people who voted for Sanders turn out and vote for me, then I win. That's really It's just a question of reaching out to those people and making them aware. Yeah. I think the number one most important thing, one of the reasons that our politics is so crappy right now is there are a lot of uh, lower information voters, but they might uh, agree with us on policy, but they may not uh, research all the candidates carefully before voting. Because there are a lot of candidates who, you know, or a lot of voters who, you know, they voted for Sanders, and then some of them probably turned around and voted for Kind, even though they are opposite ends of uh, Democrats. Yeah, I always say that for me, I feel like every single progressive that's running would win if 
every voter in that district knew about them because mm-hmm. it's just a matter of getting your name out there. Name recognition is always like one of the biggest things in politics. It's one of the biggest hurdles for, you know, insurgent candidates like yourself. Absolutely, uh, I have to agree. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that's important is even if grassroots, you know, canvassing and whatnot matters, in order to do that, I would encourage everyone to donate to Justin because you still have to build the infrastructure, um, have a staff that can do this. You still have to be able to print mailers and that needs that requires ink, that requires printers. So we need money. But of course, you can do this without 2.6 million, which is just insane. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to approach anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I would be surprised if anyone even came close to that who's running, you know, a grassroots campaign because, like, that's that's such a huge amount of money. Oh, yeah. I mean, He's been in that seat for um, 24 years, I think, give man. or take. He, since 96 is when he won his first election, and I was one then. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for some new blood then, needless to say. So um, the website is justinbonner.com. You can follow him on Twitter at justinbonner95. Support him, help him help you, and let's get as many progressives elected as we possibly can if we want to actually influence policy outcomes in this country and not just have elites influence um, democracy for us. So Justin, anything else that you want to leave us with? Well, uh, I'd say get out there, canvas for your whoever your local progressive candidate is, candidate is if you don't have a local progressive candidate and you're going to be 25 as of january of 21 then run yourself and most importantly always research all the candidates before a congressional primary and go vote absolutely that's perfect we'll leave that there thank you so much for coming on justin great to be here Well, that's it. I'm done talking. I don't have anything else for you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you want more content, you can go to humanistreport.com or if you want to support the show, you can go to humanistreport.com slash support or patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. And you can also catch us on iTunes and SoundCloud where you can download full episodes of the audio version of the podcast in their entirety. Well, that's it. Hopefully you guys uh, like that. I'm done. So I'll see you all next week. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.